0: Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm, I'm David. I'm Tyler. Okay. That's... We got things to get to. Introductions out of the way. Let's jump right into the mix here uh, absolutely what's
1: in the news today is what we <laughs> want to talk about
0: um now because i've got i've got nine movies to talk about even though i've technically seen 17 movies right. it's just that eight of them we already talked about last week indeed on the uh with, with scott and jake on the uh on the, on the main episode on the tcm classic film festival recap
1: wrap up you know what bums me out about uh jake being the guest he can't be the doorman anymore. Like, there's no way, right? When we do another commentary, he's not going to want to be that. He's going to want to be one of the guests.
0: Sure, yeah. Uh, I think that's,
1: I think, he, yeah, he's He's graduated. That means we have to fall back to Joel, who I guess does have, <laughs> in in true sitcom fashion, like, having a really catty doorman, I feel like works okay. well.
0: Yeah. Did you listen to the episode? I listened to the beginning of it, yes. So you heard us talk about Joel. Yes. Okay. All right, Um, right. I'm going to jump in. Okay. Tyler? Yes? The listeners, the long-time listeners who have gotten on my case about this before are going to continue to get on my case. Last movie journal. I'm going to use a couple movie journals. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. I talked about how like, when I make my top ten list, it has to do with movies that came out wherever they came out that premiered that year. Right. I feel like it's arbitrary to say, well, because the movie didn't come out in America. It's not only arbitrary, it's provincial to say, well, this movie came out in America, so this is my american top 10 list or whatever it feels limiting so i tried to keep it to movies that actually came out that year the downside of that is, is that there are movies that i don't see until after we do our lists right um that would have made the list
1: sure now because I've, they because you saw them when it was released in such a way that you could see them which is here in the united states where right. we live uh, and right. where when it comes right down to it we make the fucking rules,
0: <laughs> right? You know, but but what I what I said what I'm saying what I said last week is like the like the fact that we do our top ten list episode doesn't it's not etching anything in stone it does right. not put a period at the end of that sentence it's just that's when i happen to let you all look at it my top 10 list I mean, you know i still have a top 10 list from 2002 that i will update it, you know like i have all the lists and i keep them they are living documents as i said before
1: i guess i but, can't judge you saying as however you like two or three years i make a new top hundred yeah. so like we all have our thing i guess uh,
0: yes yeah, st- but this was literally something i started in 2002 and i have my list of every every movie that was released from 2002 to present has a place on one of those wow. lists um, that I've seen. Um, but the, the problem here is now t- essentially two journals in a row yeah. where I had a, uh, uh a new, uh, you know, personal shopper would have made my top 10, mm-hmm. um, would have actually been my number one. And now I saw another movie.
1: From it's been usurped. From,
0: no, no, I think personal shopper is still number one, okay. but another movie from 2016 that probably would be number two. Basically that would have out, outshone La La Land. And this is, A uh, Polish film I hesitate to say documentary I'll get to that in a second called All These Sleepless Nights and uh, it basically just consists of following this uh, I'm guessing he's late teens early 20s like enough to have his own apartment Um, and it just follows him around to parties and it doesn't really have a plot there's one part where he like starts dating his roommate's ex-girlfriend so there's a little bit of like a conflict there but even mm. that just like it doesn't really seem to matter to anyone it's basically just a, a movie that follows this kid around to parties for over the course of roughly a year in warsaw um and I, the reason i say documentary is because if you look it up the director describes it as a documentary but if you didn't know that and you watched it it seems way too composed okay um uh, and uh what's that i'm looking for uh, structured no nah, i mean that's not what i'm looking for uh like intentional which is oh, okay that's not the one i'm looking for either but something like intentional yeah deliberate uh, deliberate is exactly what i was looking All right. for. it seems too deliberate okay. to be a documentary but that's how it's described so fine whatever um but it, it it's it, it's so it reminded me so much of my own late teens and and 20s uh and you know, if I'm being honest, occasionally still today, you know, I'm still young at heart, right? I'm not tied down, I don't have yeah. kids. Sure. Uh I still get to go to parties and stuff, but you know, And you your, party hard, party hard. Yeah, but like I feel like now uh when I'm in, when you're in your 30s, like going to a party par- like a party is a little more of a structured thing. Like I don't I don't often find myself at like the house, you know, at like one thirty in the morning at the house of someone I've never met, right? Because they happen to be having a house party, and I found out about it somewhere. Like yeah. I, that doesn't happen to me as much as it used to in my in my in yeah. my twenties.
1: If I if I go to parties at this point, like with friends, you know, I don't drink, but there'll be alcohol, and it's just it'll be like there'll be music, and it'll be fairly quiet, and people will just be talking, yeah, and drinking, reason. and that's I love that. Yeah, I've been invited to one or two parties by my fellow. Students, uh-huh. all of whom are a solid 10 years younger, oh, yeah. haven't gone to one because I have a feeling it's not going to be for me. You know what? Give me them deets. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sure these they would love that. Yes. You come in with your tie and your sweater and you wouldn't look creepy at all. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. But uh, no, this movie made me feel young again in a way. I still feel young most sure. of the time. But uh, it's an experiential film it's exactly it's exactly the kind of movie that i respond to most where uh, narrative and to some extent character are secondary although i think you do develop quite a a a sense of who this this kid is you know um uh and it also the the reason i'm talking about how it made me feel about my youth is that i kind of think that the movie is in a way meant to be looked at that way. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So there's, it opens with a voiceover of the main character talking about a thing that he read about like, he's like, um, uh, uh, I heard that if you, you know, took all the time you spent in your life looking at fireworks, it would add up to four straight days. And then he Mm -hmm. like does some other things, like how much time you spend, you know, asleep or how much time you spend eating potato chips or how much time you spend yeah. having sex or whatever. And I feel like in a way that's right away. That's the movie giving us an idea as to how we're supposed to watch it. Right. Because you could watch this and go, what the fuck does this kid do? How does he have his old, his own apartment? Like all he does is, you know, stay out all night. Like most, most of the movie takes place like near dawn when he's been out. Yeah. All night." all he does is stay out all night drinking and meeting girls and dancing. Like, is, is he like independently wealthy? What is up with this kid? And I, then I think you're supposed to realize like, no, this is, we're seeing an hour and 40 minutes of his life out of a year. You right. know what I mean? Like, this is just the amount of time he spent doing yeah. this. And it's supposed, I think there could supp- be
1: a sequel where he's just eating potato chips all the <laughs> <Exactly>. time.
0: <laughs> um, and I, and I think we're supposed to look at it like, Almost as if the entire movie is a flashback in some other movie that we'll never see. You mm. know what I mean? Sure. Uh, uh, and, and so it has that uh, dreamy, experiential quality. Uh, it's called All These Sleepless Nights. It's Polish. I forget the director's name. It's two M's, it's an alliterative name. Um, and it's fucking great. All right. Um, I'll do another one real quick. Here's okay. You and I talked about this uh, the other day off mic. I saw a movie that I'm not going to tell you the name of. I told you
1: off my name. <laughs> right. Of. Yes. Yes. Okay.
0: But I, and I don't even know how to, what to say about this except to,
1: except that this could be an episode. It could be an episode. Yeah. Uh, basically, I
0: got uh, invited as a press person to a premiere of a movie. that was a an independent feature. Um, this is not. You know. There's at least one other that we'll talk about. Like, this is something that happens. Uh, you get to go to a premiere. This one was at the Egyptian theater. So it was a big yeah. premiere and it was well attended. Um, but this, mo- this movie, I, I honestly think they may have spent more money on the marketing, the premiere, uh, the marketing and the premiere than they spent on making the movie. It was so incredibly amateurish yeah. and bad. It was a like a nearly two hour version of the same sort of like, um, post Tarantino, post Troy Duffy type of stuff hmm. that we saw probably in film school. You yes. know what I mean?
1: And we thought it was great. Uh, <laughs>
0: no, I think maybe at not. The time We knew this <laughs> yeah. stuff was bad and this was, this is just as, as bad. Um, and I'm sitting there watching, it, and I started taking notes. Like I take notes at screenings, uh, for my, you know, to reference when I write my review, hopefully the next day or within, uh, you know, I try not. To, this is a whole other thing, but I tr- I generally don't like to d- write reviews the day of. Sometimes, right, we have to, especially at festivals. You, I, I kind of feel like I have to because uh, you know there's three or four movies coming down the pike, and I got to get stuff up. Uh, and then sometimes you see something, you know, on a Wednesday night, and it's coming out Friday, and you kind of want the because mm. you, know, you want to get them clicks. Um, but I generally try not to watch. I try to sleep on a movie before I uh, I write about it. But I also don't like to let too much time pass. Right. I like to write about the, about a movie at least within a week of having seen it. I try to do it generally about twenty four hours to forty eight hours later. Okay, anyway, just thought that was worth mentioning. But uh, so I started taking notes, um, and then by like a half hour in, I realized there is no benefit to me writing this. Would would no doubt be a super mean spirited review. There's literally yeah. nothing about this movie that I can say is redeeming. Like literally there is nothing good about this movie. Uh, and it's super cheap, super low budget. Like what is to be gained? It's not like it's going to get me a bunch of, it's not like it's going to get battleship retention, a bunch of traffic. Uh, right. No one will ever hear of this movie. Yeah. Um, uh, so what is the point of being mean about this movie in a public yeah. space uh, it, you know it, it doesn't need to be harmed um, uh, and so uh, I don't have anything else to say about it I just thought I'd bring that up as an idea and as you said yeah. yes, maybe this is a uh, the germ of an episode
1: yeah I've gone to one or two of those uh, screenings one of them was in fact a premiere at the NoHo 7 several years ago of a film I'm remembering it now uh huh I forgot it the moment I hit post in WordPress, okay. uh, a movie called Super Capitalist, huh. independent film, uh, not terrible, but so much of it boiled down to, uh, so much of my review boiled down to like, ah, God bless them, they're trying, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I definitely know what you mean where it's just like, it's not, you're not saying it's not worth my time, that's not what you're saying, it's that when you have nothing yeah, but- for the whole movie. Yeah, well, just to, even to write about it's yeah. just you know it's it's that idea of punching. I'm sorry to put it that way, but if you're going to write write an honest review in, in of a terrible movie, it's going to look like a punch, like punching downwards, and yes, it's like
0: exactly that's a good way to say it. Like because you know. I've written plenty of, I have no qualms about writing a pan of a you know Disney nature documentary say
1: oh um, yeah <laughs> we talking about later? I read your review of it and <laughs> I was like this is the template of all Disney nature reviews you <laughs> right. read any of mine it's all the same thing like yeah. forced narrative shitty narration we'll get, we'll get to sorry there. sorry yeah yeah
0: um but uh yeah I guess that's all I have to say okay what's up what's next for you now David- I, do, I do want sorry I, do, I would like listener feedback of what they think sure. of that uh yeah, cuz the point I, that I was making is that um it, you know, I there's no, it's doing your job as a critic to warn people away from bad movies. It's not that's not the end of the know no. that's not the the end of your job. There's a lot more to it, but that is one of the uh purposes, one of mm. the uh, utilizations, I guess, right, of criticism. Um and this movie no like the only thing I'd be doing I'd be raising awareness of this movie but in a mean spirited sense I'm not keeping no one's gonna see it anyway yeah
1: so alright
0: go ahead sorry
1: so uh, David it's not often I am bored by a movie Uh, Oh, you
0: should have gone to the Egyptian.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, As you know, I don't like to use the word boring. Um, Or at least I try to minimize my use of it. Because you can always, there's always some emotion you can tap into. It could be rage. Uh, And so, I will say that when I reviewed the new Scream Factory Blu-ray release of Firestarter, I was so bored it's i mean and i and i'm sorry to put it that way but it's just there's so much there's so many ways it could have been good and it and it wasn't and i'll put i'll put a lot of the blame on producer dino de Laurentiis, Mm -hmm. who uh i who despite being involved with the uh silent the the thomas harris uh adaptations uh and putting out Silence of the Lambs, you know, uh, he also did like the 1970s King Kong. Like he's responsible for a lot of schlock and now he didn't direct it, but I feel like the, the number of explosions in the finale seems like it had to have been coming from him. The director would go on to direct commando. So he himself is no stranger to schlock, but commando looks I'm, I'm going to say subtle in comparison. That makes Firestarter sound like, oh, if, if it makes Commando look subtle, here's what I mean. So it's about this—it's it, a young Drew Barrymore who can light things on fire with her mind. It's based on a Stephen King novel.
0: I've read the novel. Is it good? I don't remember. I was young. I okay. read a lot of novel, Stephen King novels yeah. when I was in middle school and early high school. Well.
1: I, could see that, I could definitely see this working better as a novel than as a book—than uh, as a movie. Pardon me. And um, so— and it's about this government agency that is trying to, like, you know, snatch her up so that uh, they can use her as a weapon and that sort of thing. So, at the end, it's basically, she decides to just unleash on all of the, you know, in very, in carry type fashion, yeah. unleash on all of these government agents. And, you know, sends a fireball you know, into one guy. And so there's a lot of guys who are like shooting bullets at her, but she's actually radiating so much heat that they explode before they hit her. And it's like, that's a neat idea. I like that. Yeah. But, um, so they're not gonna, they're not going to hurt her. And then she lights them on fire and then a car come, and then cars come up and she lights them on fire and they blow up. And then, Oh, here comes a helicopter. Try to guess what happens. <laughs> she lights it on fire and it blows up. And then she goes to the building, that they use, that the agency is using to like, you know, conduct experiments and, um, she lights it on fire and it blows up. So that's, it's just one thing after another. And I remember thinking like, there's no, there are no stakes here. Cause we know it's just watching the hero just kill all the villains and after a while, you get tired of things blowing up and tired of things being lit on fire. And whatever was interesting about the film was in casting. You've got Martin Sheen, a really good Martin Sheen, I must say. Uh, you've got George C. Scott as a Native American. Okay. Mm. And he does what he can, but that character is, a, is ridiculous. You've got Louise Fletcher. You've got Art Carney. Like it's a It's a good cast. But the other thing that gets me about it is that there is no mystery at all. This certainly is not a horror movie. There's nothing scary about it. So it's like, okay, suspense maybe. Except you, the viewer, are let in on every possible development. Like there's a thing that happens when when Drew Barrymore is being kept in this uh, facility. George C. Scott's character, who is uh, essentially like an eliminator for for, uh, the agency, he poses as a kindly like orderly who comes in and befriends her and he sort of convinces her to do what they say. And, but we know that he's going undercover. Whereas if he had simply shown up as this elderly, uh, as this orderly, and then he, uh, he's revealed later, then it's like, Oh my gosh, we feel betrayed just as the girl. No, we know everything before it's going to happen. Then it happens like, Oh no, well, there it goes. And it's just, it's, it's just a bunch of stuff that happens in order. <laughs> and, and that sounds boring. It is, I mean, it's it's astonishing. I, I, um, I feel like it could absolutely, someone could go back to the source material and make another movie of it and probably, it'd probably be pretty, be pretty good. But uh, again, this was a, uh, wow. Um, Martin Sheen was also in the Dead Zone with, He was, right? yes. How many
0: actors have been in multiple Stephen King adaptations? I wonder. Oh. Uh, that seems like a list we could do for the
1: website. Yes, and I won't count if they're directed by the uh, same guy, like Frank Darabont or something like that. Why not? Well, because is the because oh. then it's like certain actors do certain. Authors well But if it's a director Like oh I, know, I but
0: a- Are there actors Who are in more than one Frank Darabont movie Oh sure Stephen King
1: Yeah who? Jeffrey Jeffrey DeMunn Shows up a lot
0: See I think that's worth mm-hmm. I don't think I wouldn't disqualify that
1: But I would put that Less Stephen King adaptation and more Frank Darabont puts Jeffrey DeMunn in every movie. I, I still in every think movie. It, it fits the... Sure, that's fine. <laughs> it, fits,
0: it fits the bill. That's fine.
1: Um,
0: <laughs> anyway. It's harder on yourself. <laughs> than you need well, it's just... Uh, uh, yeah. you, I, this article is due at the end of the week. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, okay. so it's... All right.
0: Ugh. All right, I'm going to get through another couple real quick because I don't have that much to say about it, about them. I saw a documentary called Jeremiah Tower, The Last Magnificent. It's not my favorite title. Um it's an interesting movie. I just it's it's a documentary about this guy named Jeremiah Jeremiah Tower uh who I guess foodies uh know who he is. I I learned who he was from this documentary mm-hmm. but um so he was uh Raised in luxury, but also um, uh, was at least once sexually molested as as a child, um, and was, even when he wasn't being abused, he was largely ignored by his parents, who had so much money they could just, like, let him, you know, they would go on vacation for months at a time and, like, get him his own hotel room, and he would Mm -hmm. just be alone. Uh, And so he he would go down to the kitchen, and so as a kid, he fell in love with food, and so he became... Uh, a chef, and he was a chef at Chez Panisse in Berkeley in the uh, '70s. Um, and is, the movie makes the case that he is, uh, or um, Martha Stewart, uh, one of the interviewees, actually says that he is the father of um, of the American cuisine, hmm. meaning that what he did at Chez Panisse. The movie, the, the, the argument the movie makes is that the sort of uh, Genesis of what we now see as like the locavore farm-to-table type of like, oh, okay. way of eating um, is what he did at Chez Panisse because it it used to be that there was at these you know uh, at fine dining restaurants in America there was still this like old world exceptionalism where you would you know you'd have in order to have finer ingredients they had to be the ones that were shipped from
1: oh, okay whatever
0: you know and what and what he ended up doing at Chez Panisse. Um, was celebrating the fact that, no, this is, these are crabs that are, you know, from the Pacific Ocean, and this right. is, uh, you know, locally sourced cheese, and, like, he would celebrate, like, no, this isn't, you know, Dover soul. This is, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, Bay Area soul <laughs> or whatever. Like, uh, and that that part's very interesting, and then he went from there to open his own restaurant. He was the chef at Chez Panisse, but Alice Waters was the owner. He went to open his own restaurant in the 1980s in downtown san francisco uh called uh stars i think it was called and that was a huge hit and then um it sort of uh um that even though the restaurant itself was fine the neighborhood that it was in was decimated by the 1989 earthquake mm. and very quickly the restaurant sort of you know no one lived or worked in the neighborhood anymore yeah and so um suddenly the restaurant went under and he sort of spent 20 years or you know um more uh more or less in self-imposed exile he went off and lived in mexico and was uh seemingly content and then in like 2015 he was uh hired to be the executive chef at tavern on the green in new york city Mm. that's the premise um and i and the movie occasionally does the right thing where it'll have him make in his interview segments sort of make these grand pronouncements about himself. And then it'll have the talking head people who like respect him, but have them contradict him, which I like.
1: Okay. You
0: know? Yeah. To a point. But I think there's a little bit of a lack of conviction to really delve into how much it not. N- no one is questioning. This guy is incredibly talented and possibly changed the face of American food. Okay. But also like, no one is really willing to step back from their reverence from him enough to really shine a light on what a megalomaniac he is. Oh, okay. And so I kind of felt dissatisfied by, like, the third act of the movie where I was like, I want this to get into some serious shit, and it still feels more like a puff piece, even not entirely, but it still has a little bit of that.
1: Okay. Well, thankfully, we can look forward to several magnificence after him. Oh, unfortunately, no. Wait, what? the last Magnificent. Oh, no. (laughs) I've been working on that for a few minutes. Okay. (laughs) Uh,
0: And then another movie with a title that I hate. Okay, so when we did our episode a while back on directors who have only made one good movie. Yeah. One of the, I think it was a comment on the website or possibly a tweet or something. uh, Someone said, you guys didn't mention Michel Gondry. Um, Okay. And I was like, huh. (laughs) You know? I love Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Sure. I didn't like the one he made, uh, Human Nature was the one before that. Right. Um, and then he did The Science of Sleep. And I never right? saw The
1: Science of Sleep. Yeah.
0: And I also never saw The We and the Eye. Oh, yeah. And so I was like, well, let's put this this listener's theory to the test. I didn't watch The Science of Sleep, but I did watch The We and the Eye. And it's interesting, but I don't think it's that great. Yeah. Um, it's... Um, composed entirely of non-actors playing versions of themselves, which, if you know me, is up my alley. I usually like that kind of stuff, yeah. um, and it's not bad here. But uh, basically, the premise is: the movie takes place. It's a um, the last day of school at a Bronx high school, and the movie starts when the school day ends and takes place on the bus ride—not the school bus, but all of these kids take the city bus. Okay, and so as the you know as the bus ride goes, like the cast dwindles because people keep getting off at at stops. Um I feel like I do this sometimes whenever I'm describing a movie that I didn't like very much mm-hmm. on the movie journal, I'll end up describing the plot in a way that makes it sound better than it is. Oh, I okay. think I'm subconsciously describing the movie as I wish it had been. Oh, sure. Like and so I I think like I could see your face. Like, that like sounds That's not bad. That sounds like an <laughs> interesting interesting movie and it's not it's not bad, but uh it also I I think um Michel Gondry is maybe a little too, uh, he's putting his thumb on the scale a little too much, uh, at certain points, um, in, in terms of, uh, um, putting little fantastical elements. Like he'll do a thing where the kids will be telling a story about something that happened and then it'll look like it's happening. Like, he literally will have set up a soundstage on the other side of the bus, mm. so it looks like they're on the bus, and then what they're talking about is happening directly outside. Yeah, and then like another story will bleed in, and it'll also be happening in the same room. Um, and I feel like that's where he comes up against the weirdness of non-professional actors, oh, yeah. because I think. You know, the the Italian neorealists use non-professional actors a lot and it worked because they were playing versions of themselves in, you know, realist sure. depictions and I think as it becomes more fantastical, it becomes more jarring how bad <laughs> the kids are uh, as actors.
1: Yeah, their versions of, in in neorealism, their versions of themselves in a world that is very similar to their own, if not exactly the same, and they're probably emotions they can relate to. Whereas if you if you put someone in a fantastical yeah. situation is that
0: when it sticks to just yeah. the bus, but there are a little too many of the, uh, yeah. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I definitely find it more interesting. I think intellectually than emotionally, like I think it explores the idea of, um, uh, I guess the way that youth are changing. Like the, the opening shot is a boom box, um, playing hip hop music, mm-hmm. but it's a remote control boombox that looks like a city bus. Yeah, it's kind of a cool shot. Sure, and then the actual bus runs over it, and I think it's a way of Michelle Gondry saying, like, this isn't the you know the the New York City of of do the right thing, or right? Or this is the. You know, these are millennials. um, The first thing they do when they get out of school, because there's no cell phones allowed at their school, so the bodega across the street has a for one dollar a day. They'll hold your cell phone in a bag. Mm -hmm. So all the kids run across and grab their cell phones, and cell phones are hugely important to the entire the entire thing. There's a little bit more of a um, fluidity of sexuality on on the bus, but then there's still the archetypes of. Uh, you know, the shy girl and the bully kid. uh, Like it's like I said, I think, I feel like I'm describing a more interesting movie than I, than I actually, (laughs) than I actually saw. It feels a little half baked, I think.
1: All right. What's next? I could definitely see that. (laughs) Um, Next for me is, I want to make sure I I get the name right. Daniel Espinoza's life. Uh, I had not seen anything in the theater for a while and it was late at night. And, on a, like a Tuesday or something and life was playing at an, at 1130 in Woodland Hills. So I'm like, all right, let's do it. And, uh, but I was interested anyway, because I liked the idea of a movie that is very similar to alien, but done with the sensibilities of gravity. I really like the idea of that. Um, and it is, I can't say it's effective, it's, it's effective as far as it goes, by which I mean the effects are fine, the performances are fine, I can relate to the characters, and, and I have sympathy for their situation. Um, and the film's not trying to be alien as far as tone. It's not trying to be alien as far as visuals. Uh, in fact, I would say it's a lot closer to a film that I came out a couple of years ago at this point called uh, Europa report, which I really liked. Um, mm-hmm. okay. there's a certain clinical quality. These are, you know, many of these people are scientists and they're trying to approach this in a scientific way. And so there's really no expressionistic lighting or art direction or anything like that, that you would see an alien. It's very straightforward, but I think, I think it's fine for the characters to be that way, but the film starts to be that way as well. And we are watching, Th- we're watching things unfold as though it weren't a movie, um, as though it we're an unfortunate incident that happened. Um, there's some nice sequences and there's, uh, there's a, a very interesting, I wouldn't even say twist, but there's something that happens at the end that is like, Oh, okay. That's an, that's a fun development. And, and it made me wish that the film were more of that. Um, but, um, I was happy I saw it in the theater, but that doesn't mean I would recommend anybody. If you're going to see it, which I don't recommend, uh, see it in the theater. So pay more to see it because that's the best possible way, uh, that you could, uh, that it can be seen. But for the most part, the other thing that gets me is like, this movie has big stars in it. Mm -hmm. And this was not, uh, this was not a little indie film where they could show up in their street clothes and be fine. Like this was a big, a big commitment on their part. And I, I ha, I'm, I'm not sure what maybe they were paid a lot, but I have to assume it's not that. Um, I don't know. I'm just trying to think like what the appeal was, I guess maybe to be act in a genre film that could be fun. But, uh, yeah, it just, it's a weird little, it's an enigma of a film to me as far as how it came together and, why it was done with such apathy um so um
0: you mentioned the director did you say what else he had
1: directed uh, i had not
0: um because he made uh safe house also with oh okay with uh ryan reynolds which i, which I thought was kind of an underrated that's a ryan reynolds uh denzel washington movie um which I thought was kind of, kind
1: of cool. Oh, and he also made child 44, which I started to watch, but heard wasn't very good and I never got around to finishing it. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see what he does next and I'm sure he will do something, but, uh, yeah, this film just feels like there's one thing that I, there's, there's a thing I really like about it, which is every, you know, not unlike alien, these characters die one by one. um, but often um, the characters not often pretty much every time if a character dies is because they are choosing to die because it could save somebody else. So that idea of sa- oh, cool. of sacrifice is something i liked quite a bit.
0: All right. Uh, i watched because it's in the Zeitgeist. Okay. And i had never seen it before. I watched Robert Aldridge's Whatever Happened to Baby
1: Jane. Oh, okay. Have you seen it? I have not.
0: Um, it's uh it's trash. Oh, yeah. It might be great trash. I'm not sure. It's definitely too long. It's okay. like two hours and fifteen minutes long. I didn't know that, um, uh, and it's. I mean, for a movie that is horror adjacent, uh, you know, it's described as mm-hmm. horror. It has some horror elements. It's pretty bloodless, but it does feel like it. It, it does have the feel of that sort of. Uh, gothic almost camp horror like turned up you know everything's turned up to 11 yeah. especially the two lead performances uh which is why it's in the zeitgeist because of the Ryan Murphy series feud uh, right um and uh so i uh yeah i just thought i thought i'd watch it um i don't have much to say about it i guess yeah. uh i don't think i'll watch it again um i know there're some people who really uh uh revere it and i'd love to hear from them um, but it's, uh, a, a very garish movie that no. has moments that are absolutely inspired. Um, most of them as, uh, as much as I'm sure, are, are uh, you know, as I get the impression, Joan Crawford would hear to see, hear hate to hear me say it. Sure. Most of them are Betty Davis. Um, mm. just absolutely reaching for the, for the stars and swinging yeah. for the fences. Um, you know, she, she's the baby Jane of the title. Right uh who was uh, essentially a child vaudeville star, star mm-hmm. um who had a has a sister played uh named Blanche, um, played by Joan Crawford and Joan Crawford then as uh, was they became young adults, Joan Crawford became the or her character became uh the movie star and Baby Jane was forgotten and then uh Joan Crawford was Paralyzed, and now so now it's just these two sisters who are aging, and no one remembers who they are anymore. Um, in a house, and Betty Davis' character, who hates Joan Crawford's character, is also her caretaker. Um, uh, and uh, there's a the, yeah, there, there's there's a part where Betty Davis, who still kind of dresses like Baby Jane, which is weird. <laughs> um, that's part of what I like about the movie. the, the that's the garishness that I like um, starts like singing the songs that she sang as a little girl. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's, um, it's everything that's every, that scene is everything I wanted the movie to be And that it's creepy. It's also incredibly touching and it's just bizarre. Hmm. Uh, and I wish there were more of that. And I definitely think, Two hours and fifteen minutes is longer than this movie needs to be. It could definitely be trimmed down.
1: Well, I was uh, I was looking at uh, Robert Aldrich's uh, filmography here, and he definitely is someone who is good at elevating trash and pulp to if something. You got, if
0: you say so, you special. know I've never been a huge Kiss Me Deadly fan. I think oh, we've I do. Talked about that before.
1: I don't think I remembered that. I do love it.
0: And maybe so. Maybe there's something in me that like. Maybe it's the fact that like Robert Aldrich makes movies that sound like I would love them. Sure. And for some reason I can't tap in, and that makes me even more frustrated.
1: Oh, he made a movie called Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, good God. I have to assume that is about as trashy as you can get. Um, and then he did... Yeah, he, uh, that's right. I've seen The Dirty Dozen. I've seen Kiss Me Deadly. And I think that might be it. Uh, but yeah, he definitely sounds like... It's an odd choice now that I think about it, because when I look at these, like so many of his movies are like manly movies you know uh, rough right. and tumble and then he makes this weird little uh bit of would you say it's campy is there a campy quality yeah to it?
0: I, uh, I think i i did say campy. oh i'm sorry hey that's okay i do it to you all the time when i'm looking up things while you're talking um anyway let's i talk- was
1: looking up something related to the conversation at least
0: yes oh yeah i mean, i usually am too uh or i'm just thinking about what i'm gonna say next <laughs> absolutely yeah <laughs> um, all right speaking of trash oh boy I also saw and this is something else you and I talked about a little bit off mic um, I saw the new Wal- Walter Hill film called The Assignment
1: right which is, yes uh,
0: people might have heard about it because it has gotten it has uh, stirred up some controversy um, because it does have a dicey premise definitely um, Michelle Rodriguez plays a man named Frank uh, and this is a, you know, this is a cisgendered man named Frank who is a hitman who kills the wrong person, kills Sigourney Weaver's brother. And Sigourney Weaver is a, a morally questionable doctor who operates off, you know, off the record underground because she's had her license, uh, license revoked. She, and she's made a lot of money um, doing among other, like per, essentially performing experiments on runaways, but also among other things, providing uh, gender confirmation surgery to people who couldn't afford it. This is one of the things that she's done. <laughs> She pays uses her considerable wealth to pay off the mob. Uh, Anthony LaPaglia plays the mob, of basically. course. Um, to find out who put out the hit on her brother. He gives up the name of uh, Frank. And so um, Sigourney Weaver kidnaps and drugs Frank and through... Uh, her incredible you know surgical skills turns frank into someone who looks like Michelle Rodriguez yeah um oh, puts frank in a woman's body um so yes given how much over the past few years um uh trans awareness has risen mm-hmm. uh and people have been more sensitive to these issues you can certainly understand why people are are troubled by this um and it's not. I have so many thoughts. Yeah. That yeah. I don't know where to start. And you know what? Here's where I'll start. Okay. Aside from the trans issues, just as a gangster revenge thriller. <laughs> yeah. Th- it's fucking terrible. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. Yeah. That because it's it's more of an interesting movie. Again, setting aside for a second whether or not it, you know it is respectful or or or, or of these issues for a few minutes from now it's a more interesting movie when it is about these uh gender identity issues right but all all of that is pretty much all of that is being played by the actors not in the dialogue sure the dialogue is it's an incredibly straightforward story just frank kills everybody to get, oh, okay. to get his way up to Sigourney Weaver. It's just one of those movies where it's a revenge. It's like John Wick, uh, but, you know, not good. Yeah. Um, it, just him killing his way, you know, looking like Michelle Rodriguez, killing his way through a mob to get to, get to uh, Sigourney Weaver's character. It's just a simple story. And if the movie can't stop explaining itself, oh, okay. so much so that it has two different framing devices. It has Sigourney <laughs> Weaver meeting with her therapist, played by Tony Shalhoub. So you're getting her side of the story That's a
1: good cast
0: I I know right (laughs) Um, they have her side of the story and then it also has this like video journal that Frank does um and so it it keeps like it's like I know what's happening I don't need this 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 movie is not as complex plot wise as you seem to think it is just I wanted I want to do you ever have this feeling of like God, I wish I could go with that screenplay with a
1: hatchet. It, oh yeah,
0: I feel like I feel like there's there might be a good movie in here somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it's Walter Hill; like he's the guy's made great movies, um, and the pilot of Deadwood, uh, yeah. uh great stuff. Um, so it's fucking terrible in that sense. I th- here's where we get into some interesting quest- questions. So much so that I'm um, thinking about maybe writing a sort of think piece or Ooh. whatever. I don't like the word of think piece; an editorial, I guess uh, for the website about like, I feel like the movie is at least in its intent, respectful, but also I am a cisgender person. I don't have the experiences. There are things. So I read, um, over at screen crush. Um, there's, uh, um, uh, Aaron Whitney, who's a non-binary trans writer. Uh, and they wrote, uh, a response to this, they did not like this movie at all. Okay. Um, and so I was reading uh, Aaron Whitney's uh, piece, and I, w- and I was like, you know, there would be certain things they'd say, and I'd be like, uh, you know, oh, I don't agree with that. Oh, I don't think that's what the movie was like. But then right. as they got further into it, I started to think like, oh, that hadn't even occurred to me. Right. Because of my... Uh, you know, my different set of experiences. Sure. I never would have thought of that. So then I started to wonder, like, are my feelings about Walter Hill's intent? Like, are they valid? And I do think they're valid. Sure. But I also think, uh, and I think this is something that is maybe, I'm going to get into identity politics here, Tyler. I know that I'm going to get into my, All right. uh, and I'm not going <laughs> to oh, be like a preachy guy about it, but I think, um, One of the things that I think people who have different identity sets than you and I do, right, are more accustomed to. But because you and I represent what the cultural hegemony has been for so long Mm -hmm. in terms of the default point of view, in terms of being straight, white, male, cis, whatever.
1: And we do represent.
0: (laughs) But what I mean is, like, it's... It's something that is probably reflexive to a lot of people who don't fit into those categories is sometimes you have to think, oh, this movie isn't from my point of view. Like my opinion needs to be uh, or I need to come at my opinion from another way or at least attempt to try to put myself sure. in someone else's uh, someone else's shoes. And so to get back to the question, here's what I here's where I arrived. And I hope if there's a I always like to hear, you know, because like I said tyler and i represent a certain set of identities when i talk about other set of sets of identities i very much like to get comments uh pref- i like comments on the website emails if you want to want to keep it private if there are you know anyone uh, anyone trans who's listening especially if you've seen the movie but anyway uh, if even if you haven't i want to hear what you think about this to the question of whether or not my opinion is valid and yes i do think that my opinion is valid just as Aaron Whitney's opinion is valid. But what, what I, the, the comparison I came up with is that a $1 bill and a $100 bill are both valid currency. Sure. But one of them is worth more. And so I think in the case of a movie that is, uh, you know, involving itself with trans issues, I think the person with the trans experiences, their opinion is worth more. It's not any more valid it's but it has more weight do you know what i'm saying
1: yes and i'm not sure i agree um for this reason i'd be inclined to agree I, I, everyone's opinion is valid, uh, is valid and you are somebody who is who approaches films thoughtfully and and is eager i would say to see the the world from somebody else's perspective so i will give you that but on top of everything else uh, life experiences are probably a lot, or sorry, Walter Hill's life experiences are probably a lot closer to yours than to a trans person. And so along, if the, if the director were trans, uh, himself, then I would say, yeah, then the, then, our, our speculation on intent is going to be uh, not necessarily wrong or, or ill-informed, but it will be definitely from a different point of view. But when it comes right down to a Walter Hill is like you and me. And so I feel like along those lines, we are able to see, and by the way, I don't think of Walter Hill as a guy who has a whole lot of intent in, in <laughs> most of his movies, but, uh, well, we'll uh get back giving to the, this. giving him the benefit of the doubt. We'll I would say that,
0: that uh, in a second, cause I didn't want to get into an actual critique of the trans issues in the movie and sure. just my opinion of them.
1: Yeah. And so I would say that, uh, that, that, if it were a situation where it was a trans person making a movie about a trans person or trans issues, then I would say like, okay, we should not even step lightly. I mean, everyone's opinion should be heard, marketplace of ideas, that kind of thing. But because I'd say you, are, you have a lot in common with Walter Hill, and so both of you are ignorant it sounds it sounds rough but you are ignorant for, uh, from a from you're inexperienced when it comes to certain things and you both are trying and, something
0: and i see what you're uh, i do see what you're saying in terms of looking at the film in a vacuum but i think to go back to uh, here because here's where i disagree with you to go back to a conversation we had a few weeks ago about that um walking dead t-shirt that um offended right. some people i think that intent kind of you know it's it's you know it's um intent means something but it's not a shield you can while having good intents yeah you can still uh uh insult someone or harm someone and you can't hide behind
1: i didn't mean to here's what i'll say if you are if we are talking about intent i stand by my opinion if we're talking about execution i will agree with you
0: Okay. Okay. I, I mean, I, I guess um, that's yeah. Drilling down even further, I think I, I think you're right because basically, what 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 uh, what Aaron Aaron Rittney, one of the things that they wrote about um, was the idea of um, the 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 way that it depicts Michelle Rodriguez having to take um, hormone pills after, uh, and it treats it as just sort of a, a default like. Okay, Frank is given these pills. He has to take these to for uh, his body to uh to to adjust um and uh it, something that someone who has not transitioned or not been involved in transition doesn't know about and so and Whitney wrote about like how like that that there's a lot to that issue. It's not that simple and to uh a, a, and to treat it as a non issue is to reveal your ignorance about the trans experience. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, And so that's the kind of thing that makes me think like, all right, there's something that I wasn't capable of bringing to this movie that Walter Hill wasn't necessarily capable of bringing (laughs) uh, either. Um, And again, that doesn't invalidate my opinion, but it just means uh, that I, you know, there are some things where I, as a cis person, I'm going to disagree with the person who's trans and then they're going to win because they have the set of experiences to back up what they're talking about. And I don't, you know what I'm saying?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I have a hard time thinking in terms of winning though. Um, when it comes to this kind of thing, because we should
0: be working towards common, you know, understanding. Um, and so I'm, I'm being a little glib by saying winning, but, um, the, I guess I'm saying is to everyone has their set of, privileges and everyone has their set of whatever you want to call the opposite of privilege disadvantage, non-privilege, whatever. And I think everyone when they're in a a, a discussion in which you are the privileged party you should be doing more listening than talking. If it's around the issue that your privilege affects. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, That's what I'm trying to say about Aaron Whitney's opinion being while just as valid, while mine is just as valid, theirs is worth more Mm -hmm. because um, they have the experience. And so I, it's going to benefit me as a person and it's going to benefit us as a culture. If I listen more than talk uh, 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 about this specific issue.
1: All right. Well, uh, there's a whole episode now to Uh be had here, I think. Um, well, we should definitely get a person to guess. No, no, I mean, I mean, larger issues oh, okay. uh, because, and I'm not trying to say this in a glib way. Um, when the AV Club writes a C minus review, was it C minus or C plus? I don't remember. Negative review of the Case for Christ, which you liked, which I liked. Yeah, who's right? Who's right? Well, see, that's not. The, uh, that, that's, I have experiences that's that they don't. Let's say Silence. Let's go with Silence. Uh, now, most people liked it, although there was this one guy, I forget who it was, but he was a British writer. And he, he clearly, he seemed like he could not wait to write it off. But that's neither here nor there. Um, but like, if he didn't like the movie and I thought it was very resonant with me as a spiritual person, and not someone, because the film is very much about doubt, but it's about somebody who is wrestling with doubt, not someone that has given into it. But also someone that doesn't have that that has eliminated doubt from his life, um, and so if we, if it's about experience as opposed to pure identity, then is experience the the ultimate trump card when it can be no, in terms of winning? You I'm know? talking
0: about two different things. So like okay. I said, I still haven't really gotten to my critique of the film. Oh boy! Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But what I'm what I'm saying is I'm not saying that uh, if I write my review of the assignment and uh, Aaron Whitney writes theirs, um, that either one is more right than the other. Sure. Just talking about the movie. But if they are saying, uh, this was, uh, insensitive and this was offensive, this particular part of it, Mm -hmm. or just, or if they're just saying this did a bad job of this. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? In that? Yes. So if, I'm sure you in the AV Club, I'm not sure who wrote the the review at the AV Club, but if you and that person, I'm I'm sure you, if it comes down to, you know, whether or not the movie did a good job of uh, depicting the issues that you spoke to, sure, you're more of an authority. But it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that the person, I could still, uh, I I hate to keep using this one person, but this was just the article that I read. Uh, Aaron Whitney could hate the assignment, and I could love it. Sure. I wouldn't think I'm any more wrong. I, I wouldn't think that I'm wrong for loving the movie. Okay. I would still, But I would still think on the issues that they're talking about yeah. uh, uh, as to whether or not the movie is good at capturing this thing or fails at capturing this thing, that's
1: their purview. So you're saying— that it is not, it certainly is not black and white, nor is it even really a spectrum. It's two things that exist at the same time and both are equally valid. <laughs> you
0: more than two, but yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah a yeah. lot of things that yeah, yeah. at the same time.
1: But, um, I, I mean like if it's your review versus somebody else's first off, even saying versus is something I think is wrong. It's mm-hmm. your view and their review, put them together and you have very, you have different perspectives on this thing and both of them are equally valid and I'd say equally valuable. Um, Hang on, maybe that's not true. No, they're both valuable. Um, It's just both voices should be heard because then you can get a greater perspective. Because there's always the possibility, and this is something that has bothered me about Christian film, for example, is that people lead so much with their experience Mm -hmm. they're completely unable, it would appear, or unwilling to approach the film as a film. And you know where where the sweet spot is is when someone allows their experiences to appreciate the film on its terms. Now, of course, we're talking about this schlock piece of shit that you're, that you saw, which is unfortunate. unfortunate. (laughs) Uh,
0: Because, and to get, to get into what I'm saying, um, I actually do think, uh, uh, again, uh, based on Walter Hill's intent and based on my experience of it, I do think that it is a uh, positive and aims to be a respectful movie about the trans experience because the whole point of the movie to which to the point that you can say it has a, to the extent you could say it has a point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the whole point of the movie is that Frank doesn't become a different person because he's in a different body. <laughs> right. Like that's the, that's the entire, uh, in a way that's so interesting because it, it's like, the opposite of what we expect from the lead character we expect a lead no. character to have a character arc to change right to be, to be yeah. dynamic and this what's interesting about that, about this movie to me is that frank doesn't change when everything about his experience his outward uh, appearance does and i think um it's a movie that has uh you know i um i, I think you're kind of with me on this like Uh, I tend to be hard on movies, uh, on nudity in movies, as opposed to like, like, or as opposed to, uh, in terms of like, is this justified, you know? Because as we've, I think we've talked about this on the podcast. we definitely talked about it off the podcast, I think. Um, There's a difference between an actor pretending to do or be something, and then like an actor, that's the actor actually being naked. Like, is it, you know, is it justified? And I think in a way, the assignment has some of the most justified nudity. Sure, absolutely, in it. not just on the part of um, uh, Michelle Rodriguez, um, uh, who I think is nude in the movie. Although I've also heard that it might be like a, a composite body double, that hmm. it might be her head and the body. But throughout the throughout, um, see, I keep like forgetting. Like Frank is a he, the actress is a she right i keep like making like i keep stopping i want to make sure that i refer to frank the character as he because that's important to the movie indeed uh and so it keeps con- on his killing spree he keeps being confronted with naked people for <laughs> one reason or another and it kind of is that's like probably on
1: purpose and, i know i think this absolutely
0: on purpose like uh the, this uh, um he keeps getting confronted with the perception yeah. Of, uh, of, of of gender
1: I should say what I just said was stupid the way I said it of course it's on purpose <laughs> right. uh, it's not that uh, uh, the actors hadn't put their costumes on yet and Walter Hill is like you we know what wrong- just go with it <laughs> you yeah. know time is money uh, what I mean to say is uh, not exploitative um, um,
0: yes um, okay so uh, that was a really really fun discussion uh, I want to hear some feedback on that and now I don't know if I need to write the thing because I well, said everything
1: and there's but- I think there's more discussion to be had honestly because the issue here is that, like, so there's, by the way, I I looked it up because when you described this movie to me the other day, it reminded me of a horror film called Victim. um, Okay. About a young man who is, uh, it's a trashy little piece of shit movie. I don't even know why I watched it except it intrigued me. Um, This young man is is, uh, abducted by this uh, crazy, you know, human centipede-esque doctor um, who proceeds to, against the young man's will, uh, turn him into a woman. and uh, Physically. And so, it's, so, there's a body horror element of that um, because your body is is turning into a thing that you don't want it to. Mm-hmm. you know, And so, there is something... I feel like there's a question that it sounds like the assignment probably is not going to deal with, but this idea of... You know, if it were me. Now, there's not a lot I like about my body, uh, but I've gotten used to it. Uh, I know how it works to a certain extent. And if I, to such a degree that I, I think that for myself, if I were, if I identified as a woman, despite being in a, in a male's body, and then I became a woman, uh, physically, then I don't think my personality would change that much. But if I, Tyler Smith, who very much, well, maybe not very much idea, uh, identifies with being a man, cause I don't care for sports that much, but <laughs> um, that's a joke, everyone. Yeah. And so, um, if I suddenly were given, if I was given, you know, female genitalia and just had to, and also there's the hormonal changes, which, you know, can make a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, then I do think it would start to, it would affect my personality. And I think it would really, it, it does seem like at that point, wouldn't I then Ha- I feel like I would be forced into like a gender dysphoria, uh, situation because like, this is my body now does not reflect who I am. Yeah. And I've been used to this yeah. other thing my whole life. So, yeah,
0: and there's some of that in the movie. Um, the other thing I forgot to mention that, uh, in order to infiltrate the mob at the end, um, and I found this very interesting, but also super trashy. Yeah. Frank as Michelle has to like dress up as a prostitute to like get in. So it's suddenly Frank being like, hyper-feminized um, in Michelle Rodriguez's body. It's interesting.
1: That's a neat idea if it were a different film.
0: Yeah. Um, but did you ever see, there was a documentary um, about, uh, it was called like Becoming Chaz or whatever. It was about Chaz, oh, Chaz, Chaz Bono. Bono. Yeah. And there's a really interesting, like his relationship with his girlfriend falls apart as he transitions because she's like, I thought I was a lesbian yeah. And here I am living with a man. This isn't what I wanted. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Uh, it's, uh that, that was, that was very interesting because as he, as Chaz is taking like testosterone and stuff, he's becoming more aggro and stuff like that. <laughs> and the, the girlfriend is like, I wanted to be in a relationship w- with a woman. It's a, it, it's, no. it's a really interesting, uh, part of that documentary. Okay. The last point I want to make, okay. Uh, that I should have made earlier, but the analogy in terms of like, doesn't mean it's a bad movie, but on this issue, my like one person's opinion is valid. Sure. Okay. The example I use is point break. Catherine Bigelow's point break. (laughs) One of my favorite movies of all time, but really it is definitely one of my favorite action movies of all time. Okay. Um,
1: all right. That's that's an acceptable qualifier
0: favorite in terms of like movie. I'm like the list of movies that I'm most likely to throw in and watch. Sure. I love point break. Okay. Um, but like as an Angelino, it does bother me that they rob a bank downtown and then on foot they're at Venice Beach yeah. in like, you know, 30 seconds. That doesn't make it a bad movie, you know? But if we're having a conversation about whether or not Point Break, uh, you know, accurately reflects right. the geography of Los Angeles, my opinion as someone who lives in Los Angeles is more has more weight to it than the opinion of someone who has never been to Los Angeles.
1: Then. Which, Which is then where... The the conversation of director intent. Did there, is this was this the most important thing to the director, or did she just not care? Did she care I'm more sure she about you know?
0: But that doesn't mean that it's invalid for me to be bothered by it.
1: I don't know. It's uh, I feel like there are certain things that I, it see, is. I think
0: you're at odds
1: with things you've said
0: before in terms of once the director is done with the movie, it is you know it's the it's the viewers in a way.
1: It is, but it, but we still owe the director our benefit of the doubt. And just this idea is like, what is the director trying to say now? Whatever I interpret is mine, mm-hmm. but I'm still trying to see what did the director, what was the director trying to say? Was Catherine Bigelow, Bigelow trying to make Los Angeles plays itself? She was not, you know,
0: but that doesn't mean that it's invalid for me to be you know, like irked by it. Yeah. I mean, any com- er, even, uh, irked even might be too strong a word. I'm trying <laughs> to, like, it's, it's the tiniest thing that I yeah. just notice. And it's like, I wish, you know, it would have been nicer if yeah. the movie made sense.
1: And I guess everybody has something like that, yeah, exactly. that is it's usually pretty personal to them and, and what they, the stuff they like. Yes. And here's,
0: obviously I don't mean to belittle trans experience. I'm trying to just come up with uh, a relatable um, analogy. Obviously there's a lot more turmoil and dysphoria and yeah. that goes with the trans experience. You know, uh, here's, here's mine. I do have to go to therapy because the point breaks <laughs> <laughs> geographical lack of ver- verisimilitude.
1: I could see it getting to that point. It's uh, eventually, Uh, Yeah, here's the one for me, uh, and there are several, but here's one that always gets me, and I think I've said it on the show before, and it's a weird, you know, anytime a character, like like a guy in a movie, like, puts on pants and he's wearing, like, boxers, because the movie needs to move on, he never tucks them in, so I'm like, those are bunched up. Oh, yeah. Like, that's... Like I've never seen a guy That's when going to bother me now. Oh, how does it not bother you yet? Yeah. It's, I'm going to notice it now. Oh my gosh. Cause I just, and it's because of my own experience as uh, just like, Oh yeah. Bo- bunched up boxers are like the worst things in mm-hmm. the world. Like I have to, I have to stop what I am doing. Like leave the movie theater, mm-hmm. go to the bathroom when I'm at the <laughs> gym and be like, okay, I got to get this sorted out. And so for, yeah. so, for a character to so regularly, just so haphazardly do that. It's like that you, you know what, in that instance, like you've taken me out of the film now. Like that is unrealistic. This character's behaving in an unrealistic way. Sorry. Right. Anyway, moving
0: no, on. That was, that was great. I'm glad we talked for as long as we did, but we do, we should move <laughs> yeah. on, definitely. Uh, is it, still you it's your turn oh is it yeah i talked oh. about whatever happened to baby jane that's right Arizona. okay yeah
1: so uh this is a rewatch uh we have a uh you and i have a friend who is getting over uh being hit by a car yeah um and he's doing very well his name's wade um and he's uh back braces off he can walk he has a bit of a limp uh still getting his uh arm function back but i was very excited to see how well he was doing and uh, so i went over to his place and i bought a i brought a big bag of movies uh that are uh uh, british in nature because he's kind of an anglophile yeah and uh so he decided on a film that i feel like i've seen recently or at least rewatched recently it could be like in the last year but uh that's what he wanted to go with and i can always watch it which is uh sydney murder on the orient express okay which is uh have you you've seen it right okay it's been a while but yeah it really is uh just a and i don't have much to say about it except it's a delightful star-studded uh uh extravaganza i do appreciate you know the next year sydney lumet was going to make dog day afternoon Mm -hmm. and he had already made 12 angry men and the Pawnbroker, and you know i thought of him as a very gritty director and this is a film that does have it, it doesn't feel gritty but it also doesn't feel like a complete throwback, Um, but it really is uh, him just... Anytime a, a director decides he wants to dip into a genre that he normally doesn't work in but clearly enjoys, I feel like that's fun. And this time around... Rather than the characters and the performances, which is you know are definitely front and center, I was thinking more in terms of you know the wonderful music and I think some really wonderful art direction. And I came away from from it. I think I usually think this uh, every time, but in looking at the train itself, uh, which the which the camera often like looks at lovingly, especially as it's pulling out of out of the station, um, I did have this thought: it's like, man. I would l I would love to travel out on the Orient Express, like in the nineteen thirties or whatever it was. Like that sound that looks so great, like a sleeper car and it just yeah. Oh man, that looks wonderful. And I realized that like in its own way, certainly it is not Lord of the Rings or Avatar or something like that, but it creates a world. Mm-hmm. It, it, he has created a world that despite there being, you know, murder going on, I wanted to be a part of it. It just seemed like and and when you deal with certain types of genres like a murder mystery or something like that, um, it's not merely oh these characters are rich and I'd like to be rich. It's it's the the ty- it's how luxury looks, um, and it really is so different than the life that I live. And so mm-hmm. it'd be so interesting to to step into it. So uh, it really is just a it's a very fun movie. It's a film that I can watch over and over again because as you know, one of my pleasure buttons is just information. Just people just saying tons of information. And, uh, and Albert Finney gives a an insane performance. And later this year, there is an adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express. Right. Directed by Kenneth Branagh, who also plays uh, Poirot. And uh, pretty pretty good looking uh, star-studded cast. I'm actually excited to see how it, uh, how it holds up. I do feel like yeah. with, with Brano directing it, I feel like it will steer even more into the classical uh, elements. I feel like yeah, it could be
0: like, uh, uh, you said a remake of the more Murder in the Royal experience that I'm like, but then you said kind of Brown. I was like, Oh. Yeah. Like it's not Guy Ritchie's the, you know, Murder <laughs> on the Orient <laughs> right. Express.
1: This isn't your grandfather's <laughs> murder on the Orient Express as he said with Sherlock Holmes. Um yeah, and so I'm excited and I feel like it's going to be like it will be super polished and and I feel like he will do as he has done before, as he did with Cinderella, as he did with uh, Thor recently. Um, I feel like he will create a world that I will definitely want to step into. At least I hope so. Uh, we can move on.
0: All right. A couple of documentaries. One is the new Disney Disney nature documentary that we mentioned, we mentioned before. It's called Born in China. It's not very good. There's a lot of cute animals in it. Yeah. Uh, and the thing's only like 76 minute, minutes long. So that's that's fun. But uh, it's you have to balance your tolerance for the you know, how much you like the good kind of cute with your tolerance for the bad kind of cute. Yeah. Which is this, these bullshit stories that they invent and John Krasinski, man, like I consider myself a fan, but his narration is like, it's aimed at kids in the most, uh, I'm trying not to say pandering because there's pandas in the movie, uh, in the most (laughs) condescending, there we go. Yeah. Uh, condescending way. Just, just, uh, the and the the humor in the movie like uh, and then uh, you know maybe i'm wrong because the kids in the, you know a lot of people put, brought their kids to the screening and they ate it up there's of course a, they did there's a part where it's like uh talk about how uh so it's it uh, unlike the a lot of other disney nature movies that focus on this specific kind of animal and i actually remember kind of liking african cats by the way which was yeah i saw that you know, one the earliest ones um but uh this one is about a bunch of different animals in china Uh, And so there's a part where it's like talking about how rambunctious these monkeys are, but then it cuts to the pandas and it's like, and he's like, but pandas, all they want to do is sit and eat and then he goes and scratch and it's them scratching and scratch and scratching and he goes and scratch and then there's like a montage of pandas scratching their butts against trees and the kids loved it of course they couldn't the kid behind me was like they're scratching their butts!" (laughs) like just could not believe it um and uh i i I, so i guess it's it feels more aimed at kids uh, oh yeah i mean have they been steering because i haven't seen the last couple you reviewed the last couple Have i've they been steering more
1: in that direction i've seen three of these things and you can actually if you read them or my reviews in order you will actually see me eventually just give in and say like these aren't for me they they've always been for kids like and they yeah. and they I, tina Fey does did the narration for monkey kingdom uh i was not watching them i don't like monkeys i don't tim know tim allen did one for chimpanzee John C. Riley did the narration for Bears, and um, which I believe my uh, <laughs> I believe my title was Shit in the Woods, mm-hmm. um, because I don't like these things. They are gorgeous, of course, they're gorgeous. Um, and if you had, you know, what's his name, David Attenborough, you have right, him doing yeah. the narration, and you could have the exact same footage, and it's perfectly fine. Yeah. And eventually, I just realized like this is to get kids interested in nature. So you know what? Good for them. It's usually when. It's it's usually the type of story that they're putting on top of it. Like in Monkey Kingdom, the Tina the one that Tina Fey narrates. There's you know monkeys. There are monkeys that live up in the trees and they kind of run everything. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then there are the monkeys that live lower down and they have to gather all the all the food and stuff. But then there comes this moment when the monkeys from up top and you know up high in the trees uh, are are brought low and they don't know how to do anything and so like these worker monkeys are actually now teaching them how to do everything and now they're the ones on top and the way that the story was unfolding it was just like ah they're getting their comeuppance like they're animals there's no one percent in the animal kingdom i know that you enjoy i know that it's a narration that works really well but these are animals and let's not I'm fine with getting kids excited about, uh, the animal kingdom, but let's not have them, uh, let's not have them judge the animal kingdom by standards that are reserved for humans. Um, that really bothered me. Um, that's why that is the only, uh, that is the only review that I, uh, the only Disney nature review that I incorporated into my book because I thought it was important.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, more about your book
1: uh, oh, yeah. later, right? Oh uh, yeah. I guess so. Or now yeah it's uh it is not yet available i'm in the uh, printing uh, stages but it's uh it got fully funded uh more than uh 220 funded which is great and um yeah i'll be saying a lot of thank yous over at more than one lesson even though it's not really officially a more than one lesson uh, production but um or publication but uh, yeah, was, it's called Worth Watching, and I will let everyone know when it is uh, on sale. It'll be uh, $15 if you live in the United States, and I'll have to figure out what it would be if you don't. So, <laughs> but, yeah. um, And it's just a book of, of reviews and yeah. uh, and uh, essays that I've written. Uh,
0: and then another documentary for me, I watched a terrific, beautiful documentary. Again, one that's very much up my alley, because it's more about experience than narrative, um, called My Name is Salt. Um, although it actually has, I don't know if narrative is the right word, the word I would use is process. And I feel like I'm a broken record, but we've been doing this for 10 years, and there are <clears> certain <throat> things that are just pet, we talked about pet themes, sure. or just things that I like to say. Cinema, because it exists in four dimensions, is um, particularly adept at depicting process. And mm-hmm. There's something inherently cinematic in seeing this thing happen, and then this thing happened because of that, and this thing happened and yeah. things, the, the the dominoes fall um, and so my name is salt is a documentary about essentially, uh, it's, it's in the deserts of I, uh, India and they're essentially salt farmers where for four months out of the year during monsoon season, there's a, pl- this play, there's uh, essentially what, what is a desert the rest of the year that's, com- that's completely flooded, mm-hmm. right? And then when monsoon season ends, the sun comes out, it dries up all the water, but the salt gets sunk into the soil. Okay. Okay. So eight months of the year, these people these the, these people go to this area and they dig out the land, they create the little little sort of uh man-made like ponds which they dredge and they collect salt and they essentially farm, fault for, farm salt there we go. um from the soil uh for eight months a year and it's in the middle of the desert it's so
1: beautiful this movie is um, there like minimal narration is it often just uh, quiet no narration oh. at all
0: um it's just the people and there's a lot yeah there's long parts where there's not even any talking in fact i started i need to get a roku or a chromecast or something because right now what i have is i have a smart blu-ray player
1: oh yeah, yeah. but it's
0: like seven years old at this point and it it some of the functionality is not good. So I ended up having to watch this on my computer because I have noticed this with certain Amazon things. Um, if you have the option for subtitles, um, when I watch on my smart Blu-ray, it right. won't give me the option. So no subtitles will come on. So hmm. a lot of times when I watch it's a, it's a, it's bullshit, but cause I pay for Amazon prime, but when I'm watching an Amazon movie, I end up having to watch if it's a foreign movie I end up having to watch on my computer. Uh, hmm. uh, but I can p- plug the computer into the TV. It's, it's a hassle, but it ends up being okay. But it, well, my point is that I got almost 10 minutes into the movie before I realized there were no subtitles uh, there no sub because there's so little uh, dialogue. It's called My Name is Salt. Uh, it's If you have Amazon Prime, uh, it's free to watch. Um, I would definitely recommend uh, checking it out. Um, what did you watch?
1: So for my uh, film history class, now a lot of the stuff that I'm watching... I watched last quarter, so I'm not going right. to mention it. But last quarter, I didn't sit in on every screening. I would go and get something to eat uh, or something like that. Uh, so I figured any movie that I ducked out on last quarter, I would sit in and sit in on in this quarter. And so I watched F.W. Murnau's Sunrise. Oh yeah, which I had not seen for quite a while. Um, you'd think I should. Ha- I should have watched it last quarter yeah uh seeing as how i'd be conducting a discussion about it with the students but uh you know it's my my, classroom i you've seen it exactly um that little piglet though huh oh boy yeah yeah they really spend a lot of time on that <laughs> I,
0: it, could, it could have been the whole movie for all I care <laughs> I think it's adorable
1: um it would be wouldn't it be weird if there's this movie called sunrise and it's like really it's really, it's like this odd fable for like two minutes and then this piglet shows up and that's all it is <laughs> for the next 45 minutes um oh that's marvelous so uh yeah um I of course I I love it um as always, and as I'm going to say countless times uh, over the next several weeks, talking with people that have no experience with silent film, no concept of German expressionism um, is really interesting because I used Sunrise to introduce the concept of German expressionism. They seemed to think that was interesting and uh, at least I hope so. And But some of the stuff they said about Sunrise was, was interesting and, uh, and, and unsurprising because they said, you know, this, this husband goes from like wanting to drown his wife to loving her immensely and all that. Like, how does it flip flop like that? And it's just like, well, because it's not real because it's, it is like a fable where people don't, there's not a lot of nuance there. It's just somebody wants to do this and that's all they want. And then they want to do the other thing and that's all they want. Um, but along those lines, uh, and this is what I'm about to say is like pure expressionism. The, um, I was struck this time more so than when I when I watched it the last time. The village uh that the husband and wife live in is so small and it's by the ocean and there's like maybe 10 little cottages in there. Mm-hmm. It's I mean, and and they look very, not even when I say old timey, like that, I picture the thirties and this was made before the thirties, but it just, it looks like something out of a fairy tale. It looks like, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, the little town from beauty and the beast or Pinocchio or something like that. And it just looks so antiquated. And when you think about, Oh, wait a minute. This couple also goes into the city where there are cars and people rushing around, and it's like these two things are so different. They look like they couldn't possibly exist in the same time period. It's like, well, they don't really, because both the city and this, these, this village, they're the, the, they're the essence of what they are, and the story is the essence of this thing. Like, it's not about, it's not meant to be. A specific time it's not meant to be these specific characters it's meant to be you know it's a song of two humans like mm-hmm. that's that's very conceptual and so the idea that this town is meant this little not even town this village is meant to be every the our our concept of what a village is and an innocent village a village that is untouched by modern uh insanity and so just looking at it like that, I don't think I quite remembered how disparate it was between the town and the city mm-hmm. um, and the 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 woman from the city and then the wife, um, the wife who looks very an- angelic and, again, antiquated, and then the woman from the city has black bobbed hair mm-hmm. which in the lecture uh, our professor mentioned that you know that was how you looked that's how women looked in the 20s like if they wanted to show how metropolitan they were and so and then there's a scene where the young couple they go into the city and they they go into a uh like a salon and he's going to get shaved up because he looks kind of scruffy. And then they start to actually do something with the wife and she doesn't want any part of it. She literally walks away. Like they're attempting to turn her into into, something city related and she understands that yes but if I look like that maybe it will change me it's like she has an understanding she has an understanding what expressionism is at that point (laughs) and so it's uh it really is just a magnificent film I I liked it when I first saw it years ago when we did our Murnau episode um and I think I really love it now and and some of the kids, you know, one of them said that uh, it was his favorite movie so far. And we've watched, you know, Singing in the Rain, we've watched some Chaplin, we've watched, you know. And so he just said, I haven't seen anything like this so far in class. And it's like, yeah, I guess that's true. Like, expressionism is such a unique idea in film. And then I also, and then in my section, I think next week or the week after, I'll be showing. The Odessa Step sequence from Battleship Potemkin, and I'm excited to hear their take on that because we certainly haven't seen anything cut together like that yeah. up until this point. So,
0: what's the percentage chance that you accidentally refer to the movie as
1: Battleship Potemkin? I'm going to say class? in the area of 97. Okay. <laughs> percent uh, You know what? Here's what I do actually to avoid that: um, I just call, it, I just say Potemkin. Okay. Um, I know that that's not correct, but mean- uh, but yeah. You're getting no complaints out of me. It's not my it's not my place to pitch the podcast to uh, these students while the quarter is going.
0: All right, um, one more movie, one more movie for me, and I'll end with another documentary. Uh, I saw this one last night. It has a uh, it, it's 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 powerful stuff. Um, sometimes you just. Uh, a documentary and just stumbles onto a great story. Okay.
1: Um, what's this look on your face? Because it sounded like you were setting up a really dumb documentary. No,
0: no, it is. I like what I'm setting up is that it has a dumb name. Oh, okay. Got it. it. Cause I, I hate this name convention. It's called finding Oscar. Oh, the, uh, the blanking blank. Yes. Con- like name is so yeah. worn out. Um, so I was expecting, it was like, Oh, this is generic, generic name. <laughs> I was expecting a generic, uh, movie. And it's not, you know, in terms of it's, form and construction, it's a pretty standard documentary. You know, there's archival footage, there's talking heads interviews, and there's, you know, some uh, you know, overhead shot, aerial shots, stuff like that. Um, but the story is incredible. So, and there's a lot of it, so I'm going to try and narrow it down to the um, the, the most important points. So, Guatemala had a 36-year civil war um in which many, many atrocities were committed, many of them by the Guatemalan army. Uh, one of these, and the movie focuses on one, uh, was in December of 1982, a village called uh, Doseres, um, where uh, the army thought that there were guerrillas uh, being hidden. Um, they went in the middle of the night, they rounded everyone up, things got out of hand, and so they decided to kill literally everyone in the village Hmm. men women and children they slaughtered an entire village um there were only a few survivors there was one like 11 year old kid who ran just ran away and got away there was one uh farmer who was uh lucky lucky enough that he happened to be out tending his fields in the middle of the night and so he wasn't Hmm. there when this happened but his entire family was killed and then there were these two boys one five one three who, and this is apparently something that would happen sometimes, uh, a couple of soldiers decided, hey, I like the looks looks of these kids, and they just took them and just, uh, you know, made them uh, essentially, like, in some cases, and this is what happened to the five-year-old, who was old enough to remember what happened that night, uh, turned into essentially like a a servant um, at at this kid's house. The three-year-old, who didn't, had no memory of this, was just told that he was... He, I I think he knew he was adopted growing up, but he was just, he was a member of the family. Mm -hmm. And so he actually had, you know, a great, very happy childhood in the home of this guy who slaughtered his real family. Um, and, but what's important is that, you know, there's no, you know, they don't have any birth certificate or anything for this kid. They know from the stories of the few survivors that this three year old kid was taken. Um, but they don't know how to find him. They eventually find out, okay, his name, uh, they, they don't know what his real name is. They know Oscar is what this soldier uh, named him um, and raised him as. Uh, but then the soldier died fairly young, so he ended up living with an uncle and he had moved off. They lost track of him. So, um, the the storyline, I guess, of the movie is we got to track down this, 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 I mean, I say kid, he's a grown man. He's, yeah. Um, older than I am now. Um, uh, and tell him who he is because he's lived his entire life and he doesn't know um, that he's a survivor of uh, of this massacre.
1: Now, who is uh, they?
0: Uh, that's a good point. I see. I'm glad you asked that question because the government and the army of Guatemala has no interest in dredging this up, right? But there are uh, private sort of advocacy and activist groups th- because this this sort of thing that happened in Dos Eres was not. Uh, an isolated incident sort of thing happened all the time. And like in a lot of South and central American countries in the middle of the 20th century, a lot of people tended to just disappear. Yeah. And so like in Argentina and like in Chile, um, there are groups dedicated to finding what happened to these people and they're tireless. And so the, the charges mostly led by, um, the, the, there's a this group. Okay. Um, uh, it's called, like, uh, Fem- FEMGUA. I can't remember what it stands It stands for something in Spanish. Um, uh, and, and they generally try to, you know, exhume bones and find where people mm-hmm. can bury it, identify remains and stuff like that. Um, and they were heading up the docerex exhumation of, you know, 200-something uh, dead bodies. Um and uh so it's it's mostly them and there's also uh a, a guatemalan uh journalist her name is honest something i can't remember her last name um she was actually at the screening uh and yeah so so there's a handful of people who are who are trying trying to do this um and so yeah that's the story is them trying to get but i like I, there's so much more that i want to tell you that ha- like there's right. so much more that happens i'm sure yeah that's so so fascinating this, this story ends up that you know part of the thing that's fascinating they talked about this in the q a afterwards is the idea that this is one incident among many that happened in a super remote part of guatemala and yet in trying to tell the story they ended up having to travel from guatemala to mexico to california to massachusetts to winnipeg like this the, uh, the idea is this the uh, you know an act of violence this uh, devastating has tendrils that reach out across, yeah. in this case, all of North America. Um, it's, a it's, it's fascinating. The director's name is Ryan Suffern. Um, and, uh, uh, Frank Marshall is one of the producers It has a lot of, hmm. it's, you know, it seems like a, it's getting a, a small ish theatrical release, but it has the, you know, Kennedy Marshall, yeah. you know, backing behind it. Steven Spielberg is one of the executive producers. Um, Uh, it's called Finding Oscar it's definitely worth checking out but it's not uh, exactly a uh, fun afternoon at the movies it's a a heavy movie and yeah stuff I want to talk about I wish I could I know because it gets into like stuff again I'm glad I stayed for the Q&A because it was one of the more interesting Q&A's I've ever um, stayed for for a movie because they talked about like how much of it like when they get into America like how much of the story has to do with immigration and how you know they made them they did most of the photography of the movie and in, uh, in interviews and stuff in 2014 and how like how different the story would be today yeah. you know with how quickly things are changing with immigration it's uh, but that's stuff i don't want to spoil I yeah
1: guess. yeah so do you think with those people behind it do you think the film might get uh, like uh, an oscar campaign
0: oh it's possible it definitely seems um it seems like it's that kind of that kind of movie
1: Yeah.
0: um it also makes me wonder like if you have like steven spielberg and kennedy marshall and stuff behind it like is the idea like are they just floating the documentary to see if they can like gauge interest in making a narrative version of the story um i don't know but uh yeah Uh, really really powerful stuff in terms of content it's not again it's not a particularly formally daring movie but it didn't it doesn't need to be it's very very powerful stuff all right okay let's get into television
1: absolutely do i have more tv than you is that the deal yes you're gonna do two off the bat okay so i trying to think what order to do these positive to negative or negative to positive Just do them in the order you watch them, except save Survivor for last. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right, so I started watching, I watched several episodes, if you want to call them that, of Mystery Science Theater 3000, the, uh, the new Netflix show. Oh, okay. And, I mean, it's good, of course. I mean, it's funny. I laughed out loud many times. But it doesn't feel the same. And I'm trying to think like, okay, is this just my nostalgia acting up? Like it's not Mike, it's not Joel, it's not, you know, Kevin Murphy or anything like that. Uh, And you know what? I don't think it's that because I think my complaint will go away eventually because more than anything, it's, uh, the timing is off, I think.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Like the, the comedic timing. Like there's a, there'll be a a moment where the three the three guys will will like fire off three jokes in a row very fast jokes about the same thing but the three jokes don't build on each other they're three completely separate jokes and it's one literally right after another like you don't have time to really process one before the next one is there and that's something i don't remember it's almost like they did not want to sacrifice any joke now I'm sure that's not the case, but that's how it felt. Mm-hmm. And you know, there in in the old MST3K like there would be jokes in rapid succession, but they I felt like they would always give you a bit of a moment. They don't really step on each other. And I feel like that's I think that's a function of timing and a function of people who in the in the previous series people that were used to working together and had a cadence with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, if you and I Uh, not to imply that we are comedy writers or comedians or anything like that. But if you and I were to make a series of jokes, I feel like I know your cadence and you know, my cadence enough that we'd be able to time it out. Right. But if I was paired with someone else or you were paired with someone else, the cadence just wouldn't feel quite right. And that's, that's how this feels. It's still, the jokes are still funny, uh, in many cases, but other times it's like, wait, 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 what? Hang on. And it happens probably two or three times per movie. Hmm. Um, and I and again, I'm trying to take any nostalgia out and recognize that like, well, that doesn't, you know, it wasn't like it was perfect then. It's not like it's lesser now. I will say this, that Baron Vaughn is funny. He's the voice of Tom Servo. He's funny, but there's something, there's something about the Tom Servo voice that we know, Kevin Murphy's voice. It's a very specific type of deep theatrical voice okay um and baron von's voice does not really register so crow jonah and tom servo they all kind of sound the same sometimes i can't totally tell who's telling what joke um and i feel like that's it's not necessarily a problem you know funny is funny but i feel like part of the appeal of the original was that like you knew who tom servo was but
0: you also watched more that's that seems like something you'll get used to yeah. I bet there are people who listen to this podcast
1: who don't know which one of us is David and which one is Tyler. That's probably true. That's depressing to think about, but I don't know why. Um, yeah, and and it's, I guess, Crow and Tom Servo, regardless of who is doing their voices, they do have very specific types of jokes and very specific types of personalities. Like I said, Tom Servo tends to be more theatrical. If someone's going to sing, it'll probably be him. And then crow tends to be a bit more biting and, and sarcastic and, and not cruel, but uh, there's a sharpness to, to him. And uh, in this, they don't seem to totally understand how to parse out the jokes to play up the personality, you know, I think part of the part of the appeal of the original MST3K is that you're hanging out with your friends, making fun of this movie, but you know who each of your friends are and you know the type of joke they're going to make. Whereas this, it's more just three guys that are funny making jokes. I don't know. It's so I
0: feel. But do you think you'll just get you? Do you think that's just. Like I said, the things you're saying about the old show is that something that just happened because you watched
1: so much of it. Possibly, and and I might get used to this, and it, I think it could just be a growing pain situation. Like they're they're finding their footing from a timing standpoint, from mm-hmm. a character standpoint, and uh, but yeah, and and the jokes. Are, I think the ti- the timing. I think is is a genuine issue. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but I think that actually is definitely something that they will find their footing on if they do another season, which I have no reason to think they won't. But, uh, but yeah, it's again, still funny. Everything good. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. You leave Uh, that. Okay. So anyway, um, still funny. Glad I watched it. I haven't watched all of them. I'm going to, um, but and every once, you know, as tends to happen, probably like 3 times I will burst out laughing because it's like that is the funniest fucking thing I've ever heard. But um but yeah, I was a little bit disappointed, but I'm also trying to uh temper that with you know what were my expectations, you know. So what's next? Next is I watched season 2 of documentary now. Oh, okay. And it is delightful and as tends to happen the more familiar you are with the source material, the more you will appreciate what they're doing with it. Uh, they do a really, I mean, there's one that's like the War Room, the James Carville thing. Um, do you know the the War Room?
0: Uh, yeah. Okay. I've never seen it, but yeah. I know what it is.
1: And then there's one that is essentially like uh, Spalding Gray swimming to Cambodia, and it is spot on David I am telling you it is amazing and then um and then they have a two-parter uh, kid stays in the picture that is uh, pretty pretty great as well. And Didn't they also do a Jiro Dreams of Sushi one? They did, which, you know what, I did not watch that because I had these on while I was working, and that one is not all in English. So it's like, well, i got oh, okay. I got to like, read this. So I will return to it. But I also haven't seen Jiro Dreams of Sushi, so I feel like I might not totally appreciate it. Um, they had a, a fun uh, Stop Making Sense. Uh, oh, see that?
0: I've, I've listened to that music. It's very good. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And there's a weird Tom Waits uh, bit in there as oh, well. Um, so it's, I will say this. It's hard to know if these things, if this is, if the humor comes from, oh, I recognize that. Oh, they've done such a good job of approximating that. Um, and I think some of it might come from that, but at the same time, the genuine de- story or character developments are very very funny um i don't know if they can ever beat the uh the uh oh my gosh i can't think of it Nanak of the north uh, parody that they did the first season um that one is pretty amazing but uh but yeah and then they do have a they have one that's like salesman the mazel's Mais- uh, okay. brother's salesman that was that was season two Season two. That's okay. that's oh, is that true? Yeah, I think it's season two. Okay, um, I might be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure it's season two anyway. Um, and that one, it's funny, but it's it's so sad. <laughs> like <laughs> you know, it's it's like that movie Walk Hard, where they're trying to, you know, they're trying to parody like the the modern musical biopic, and then after a while, they just sort of started falling into the patterns of it. Like sometimes you just you just can't parody something. Or at least, so so one would think, until we get to my next show, which I'll talk about in a moment.
0: Okay, uh, I got a chance to to watch um, the first episode of The Handmaid's Tale, mm. in, uh, the new Hulu series. It's very, it's good, it's really good, um, and it's uh, uh, it, it's. <laughs> it takes place now. Like not, it's not even like a, like in the near future, it's like an right. alternate now. Um, and it's scary how, how much they make it fit into the, for what is, you know, a high concept, you know, sort of, uh, I guess you'd say dystopia, um, is scary how well they connect it to our current, moment i i i I don't just mean politically or whatever although there is that and i don't even know if that's even the right word for it but um tonally yeah and and the way that these you see characters for those who don't know the premise
1: uh i I don't think i know the premise actually
0: so it there's been some sort of war or something and the people who won are essentially like modern day puritans Mm. um and so they have um, strict uh, gender roles in this in this world, and um, so there are house servants, I guess, who are women, um, the you know, as far as the people who are in the more, I guess the uh, upper classes, the men uh, work and the women stay home. and then you've also got. The 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 main thing where you come where the handmaids come in is that part of this war, you know, that happened before the movie took place, included like some irradiation or chemical warfare or something, and um, uh, fertility is very rare now. Okay, so now basically, well, women who are fertile, especially women who aren't part of the upper class or whatever, are you know, kept essentially as what they call handmaids, which basically they're just, they're just meant to be surrogates. They're just kept, um, for the, the, the men to impregnate, um, and then give birth to babies. And then the, the, the upper classes or whatever, the ruling classes or whatever will raise the babies. And Elizabeth Moss plays, uh, one of, one of these. Um, and, uh what i really liked about it one one thing that really stood out to me uh did, did, you know while i was watching it even it didn't it only occurred to me later that despite and then this is just the pilot i'm not sure how many episodes are doing this is just the first episode um despite this being about a a a world in which men run everything there are almost no male speaking parts at all in the pilot hmm. um joseph fines you know has a couple of scenes, but one of them is almost entirely wordless. Um, uh, and will clearly play a bigger part going forward. And then you get flashbacks to Elizabeth Moss's, um, either boyfriend or husband, um, before, uh, before the end of the war. Um, but even he, you know, you don't see that, that much of him. Um, it really does play, take place entirely within the woman's world. Both the care, you know, uh, uh, both sides of the characters that we, identify with, and the, you know, for lack of a better term, villains, mm-hmm. um, played by, uh, Ann Dowd plays the, um, mm-hmm. the woman who runs the, what they call the Red Center, which is the school where they teach the handmaids to be handmaids, uh, so she's the taskmaster, and then Ivana Strahovski plays Josephine's wife at the house where Elizabeth Moss is, Moss is stationed to be the surrogate, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really what it's about in terms of connecting it to more you know pressing or more uh, immediate uh, political or social issues it's about the way that an oppressed class can be made by the oppressors to turn on one another yeah you know um and that's also like the one part where it gets uh, there, there's the only one scene that i didn't like because i thought i was too on the nose is this sort of like this scene at the red center where there's like ritualized victim blaming, you know, where they're being taught to like taught specifically to blame rape victims for having been Hmm. raped or whatever. And that felt like, it felt like the show had already, had already done enough and done it really well. And subtly at that point showing how these women are made to be suspicious of one another, the sort of to turn them into like a sort of self-policing slave force. Um, that was already established and would, and, and is established after that, that that scene um, felt a little uh, on the nose. Other than that, I thought it was uh, really well done. Um, and it also, I mean, it speaks to it speaks to some fears that people who feel the way I do really have right now with the ascendancy of people who talk about or treat women a certain way with our you know bleeding out of her whatever slash grabbing by the pussy president um but then also in you know a less uh in in a a less outwardly vile way it's the reason that uh you and i i think talked about this off mic Mm -hmm. but the reason that like people who feel the way I do are unsettled by the Mike Pence doesn't want to be alone with women thing. Right. Because it, I, it implies an inability or unwillingness to see a woman as a whole person at, in the same way that you see a man. It's like an, in a, like there's, there's a certain like either sexualization or domesticization or like there's a role that women are seemed to, to to exist for that some people are aren't able or aren't willing to look past and that is it's it's it is unsettling to me even though i don't think I, you know i i obviously i don't i don't agree with mike pence on a lot of stuff i don't think that he's like actively trying to be a douchebag with this rule, but I think it has, uh, it has undertones and it has effects that, uh, are, I keep using these words, but it's troubling for someone in that position of power to, 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 to be treating men and women so, so differently and inherently unequally, um, and to and in a way that whether he sees it or, as this or not is so it suggests such a limitation as to what a woman can be that it the the the, the fears you know the handmaid's tale is a you know it's a dystopian or whatever but it plays like a horror movie to me mm-hmm. because it speaks to some things that i see that are real i don't really think this
1: is going to happen you know, this specific thing. Right. But, um, although if North Korea keeps getting uh, provoked, (laughs) well, they'd have to improve their missiles, but you know,
0: but I think taking like, I think there are some, some family values or no, they're not family. Here's the thing. There are some values that hide behind family values or hide (laughs) behind Christian values that I think are that some people would like to think of as outdated, but are still with us in a way that can still do frankly damage. Um, and I think it's about, uh, this is why I say the hide behind these things, because I think it, it comes down to, you know, uh, issues of control a lot of the time. Um, and I, yeah I, I wonder what, what you think of this because the, 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 I, you know, described them as Puritan and they're made to seem very, you know, Christian. There's a lot of it's talk true. about like what, you know, God's plan and God willing and yeah. uh, praise be and all this stuff. But there's, there's a line actually, because uh, Elizabeth Moss has some narration um, sort of filling us in on what's happened. But there's a line that I found really interesting um, that I'd uh, like to hear your point of view on when in the red center, when they're teaching women to be, you know, the to be demure, to not speak unless spoken to, and all that kind of stuff, they repeatedly say uh blessed blessed are the meek, or whatever. That's a thing they repeatedly sure, sure. say. And then Elizabeth Moss mentions in her narration that they they never include the inheriting the earth part. Right. And I think that's a clue. Um that that's meant to show us that the Handmaid's Tale is not anti Christian. It's not saying these values are Christian. It's saying these people will hide behind and distort Christian values. Sure. Um, that's how I read that. I don't know how you'll feel about, uh, you know, all the villains <laughs> in this thing being Christian. But, yeah. Um, uh, I, I, would like to get your point of view on it when, uh, I uh,
1: do, I do have a certain knee jerk reaction that I don't feel like getting into at the moment.
0: Um, really?
1: Yeah. I mean, wh- where's it going to take us? Not in a great place as far as what religions you can make fun of and which ones you can't. No one's
0: making fun of anything here.
1: Well, which, which, let's just focus on Christianity because that's the safe one to focus on. And it's something I I do get tired of.
0: But I think you're, um, I think you're assuming a defensive position that you don't need to. I think you're feeling victimized when that's not what's happening. Like, the whole point is to say that. It, yes, this is happening other, uh, 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 elsewhere. It could happen here too. If it did happen here, it would be Christian, not uh, you know, not Islamic or whatever, because it's about culture, not about religion.
1: Now, here's the thing,
0: and it's inher- it, it exists in all of us.
1: Now, I'm taking it a certain way as a Christian. What the what they intend doesn't really matter. In my experience, I'm taking it as they're focusing on me and my beliefs, and they want to make me feel bad but, for my beliefs. But are these your beliefs? Not necessarily, but at the same time, what I mean to say is to go back to, admittedly, peek behind the curtain hours ago when we were <laughs> talking about the name of that Walter Hill movie. The I've, I've yeah. now forgotten the assignment. You know, it's this idea that. Uh, Alarm bells are ringing that like, because the thing is, this isn't my belief, but they might think it is. In fact, a lot of people do think it is a lot. A lot of people do think that, Oh, Christian, I know what that means. And what they think it means is someone who will only use this to oppress people and hurt people. And
0: I'm not saying that's okay, but it is hard for someone who doesn't, for someone who doesn't believe in God, mm -hmm it's hard not to here's here's a a comparison. I, since I was a kid living in the suburbs, Mm -hmm. I always couldn't wait to grow up and move to a city. Sure. And I have such a hard time understanding why people want to live out in the country Mm -hmm. that I tend to subconsciously think they're up to something like there's something like, what are you trying to hide? Why are you, you know, like I, because I can't understand it, right. I, and I know it's wrong, but I subconsciously tried, I try to come up with reasons. And so I think to someone who can't wrap their header on the idea that you actually think there's a God, mm-hmm. it's hard not to start coming up with ideas of like, well, what does it benefit them? Like what, what can they use this for? Sure. Like why? I, so I'm not, I'm, and I'm not excusing that. It is, um, it's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's, it, it's a myopic uh, and uh, you know inward, isolated way of thinking um, that we should try to avoid. But I guess I don't think they necessarily are trying to. Uh, I here's don't think here's they mean to here's hurt your feelings. Th- I
1: guess th- I don't give a shit what they mean. <laughs> let me let me put it this way: Walter Hill tries to make and likely fails, based on what it sounds like, fails horribly. But tries to make a movie that explores positively uh, the the transgender, uh, I don't want to say issue, that's him, but like experience. what it is, experience. Sure, yeah. uh, he's trying to explore it and trying to, in his own odd way, understand it and people latch on to all the things he got wrong. We have a TV show that I have not seen that's based solely on what you've told me, we have a TV show that is more than happy to portray Christians or engage in Christian rhetoric in order to show their the the villainy of their villains, um, and we have. And then you are telling me, if you'll pardon me, I shouldn't be offended. They're actually I'm, portraying I'm, wait, when people. Wait, did I say you shouldn't be offended? Oh, that, that that's not what they're trying to do. That I should that I should. But start, I didn't say you
0: shouldn't be offended. I'm just trying to explain what they're trying to do. I'm not trying to um, th- And I, did haven't, I say that your being
1: offended wasn't valid. Uh I think because when you when you start saying that do you think it's valid? Of course that's Why wouldn't I think it's valid? Well, and I haven't seen it, of course, obviously. So I don't think it's totally valid either. <sighs> I don't think that there's a war on Christmas and I don't think there's a war on Christianity but I think if you decide if a filmmaker decides he wants to make fun of Christianity he's pretty safe in doing so. In the critical community, people will say that Sausage Party is a fucking amazing movie because it's 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 asking really ham-fisted and terrible questions that can be disputed easily. But because it's trying to do this thing, suddenly it's amazing. I understand why you would want to in, if you want to have a like an indictment of religion, then you would try to go with the religion of, of the people would recognize, otherwise it could be seen as xenophobic or islamophobic or something like that. Um, so in order to not have those claims leveled at you, you stick with this one, where no one will ever level that claim at you that's what Isn't I mean that what you're doing doing what leveling claims at them. Uh, in what sense? Uh, against who? You're verbally attacking the people who
0: make The Handmaid's Tale. Okay. Okay.
1: And what am I saying?
0: I understand that you live in Southern California where you are the minority, mm-hmm. but to all of us, right. making fun of Christianity is punching up. Sure. So I don't think, I don't think we need to check ourselves.
1: Well, I was going to make a wreck yourselves joke, but it's, I guess that's, and so what would, it just seems like a very, and you know what, maybe I'm wrong right now because of who's in power. Someone who claims to be Christian, but has given no indication that he is even saying that he is all of our presidents. Well, I guess George W. Bush. And, J- and Jimmy Carter. The two of them yeah. seem to be sincere. But
0: all of the presidents in my lifetime pretty much have claimed to be pr- right. claimed to be Christian <laughs> despite no evidence besides this occasionally attending church, which Donald J. Trump doesn't even do.
1: Right. And even during the primary, he said, he's like, well, I don't know if I've ever done anything to be forgiven for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is like, that seems like a central tenet of uh, Christianity. But So I recognize that, you know, the party that... Uh, I will go ahead and say absconds with uh, Christian terminology and, uh, and is willing to use it and utilize it. Uh, they're in power right now. So obviously you're going to want to uh, not you, but like well, don't, say,
0: don't say it's not the party. Cause it's not like Democrats are not all like all Democrats claim to be Christian too. Uh, right. But that's, uh, it's not, you see uh, a difference. But I'm saying, people who aren't Christian don't.
1: Okay, fair enough. I'm saying that,
0: that that everyone in power is or claims to be Christian. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm rounding up there. There are sure, some sure. there are some exceptions. Um, so, I, I I I just don't think. I think it's a little bit narrow of you to feel like you're being picked on when most of us feel like we're the ones fighting back
1: back against what
0: against Christianity as a concept as the way it's wielded as an oppressive force specifically in terms
1: of sexual values and gender roles um, I can understand that but at the same time uh, it is a thing that I, as an individual who is really trying and I recognize that, yes, I'm conservative. Yes, I'm Christian. And yes, that probably means that I have certain views that people are not going to like. And I recognize that. But I'm really, I really try to be, and I don't always succeed, obviously. Like I try to be uh, the type of person that Jesus could look at and say, you know, well done, my good and faithful servant. Like I, I try to be that. And to just uh, over and over, like in the, in stand-up comedy and in movies, it just seems like punching up. Let me let me put it this way: punching up doesn't mean it's not an easy target. You know what I mean?
0: Sure, because it's a big target.
1: Right. It's it's. But that's
0: all the more reason to punch at it.
1: I guess uh, I'll, I'll I'll mix another metaphor, like. Well, no, I guess you don't punch low hanging fruit, Um, but you know what I mean. Like, well, absolutely, it is kind of nature's punching bag, obviously. But uh, it just seems at this point, like there's as much as I dislike Christian film, and I tend to dislike Christians uh, Christian attitudes about Christian film, which the attitude is almost always like, "Well, finally, something for me." uh in in film or something that doesn't openly mock my values uh by which i mean conservative christian values um i don't like that attitude and i feel like it leads to really bad art and by all accounts the handmaid's tale is is very good art and that's fine um but it's just a, a thing that i after a while can't i just get tired of seeing it yeah, i can not having the conversation. I know, and I fucking hate it. Like, because <laughs> I feel like I have to I have to defend my being upset. I have to defend my feeling like Hollywood does not like me. I have to defend uh the fact that when I talked t- when I, you know.
0: But is that different from anyone ever being upset? Doesn't like don't you always have to explain if you have a problem?
1: No. What not at mean? all. Like it's
0: if, I mean to go back to the the the, the assignment and the Screen article right. I uh, that I that I read that got me thinking. That was this writer defending why they were upset.
1: Right, and you said they have every right to be upset, and their opinion is more valid than yours. I say I'm upset, and you say that's narrow. I recognize that one is. That's the thing, and that's what I mean to say is that Walter Hill was actually trying to do something positive and people hit him for not doing it right. The Handmaid's Tale is more than happy to portray this in a negative way, and people are defending them over me for getting offended at that. Um, and by the way, I don't like the idea of saying offended. I don't think I get offended that often.
0: Um, I, I seriously, I think I I definitely think that's a good point and something to consider. But I think. It also goes back to what I was saying before about the balance of power.
1: Sure, you're, you know, I'm for uh, arguing in favor of the people that don't have much of a voice uh, all day long. Like I, I, that I'm fine with. But I also, and I, that's the thing is, I don't mean to say that the that the shots that The Handmaid's Tale is taking are cheap. It sounds like it's a very well thought out uh, and intelligent uh exploration of the way power powerful people can use these things so i don't mean to put it that way um i guess what i mean to say is from the point of view of the viewer um like at what point am i is it okay for me to be offended and i just can be without having to explain myself or having to defend myself Like, the moment I stop being Christian and I start being something else, like, because I I have... You wouldn't um, be offended. Well, that's true. Um, I
0: guess I'm just trying to think of a situation where someone doesn't have to
1: explain why they're offended. it's, It's not the initial explanation. It's when people come back at them and say, you shouldn't feel like that, or you shouldn't feel like that to the degree that you are, you know? You, you would never call, I forget who, Aaron Gibney? Whitney. Whitney? Who's Aaron Gibney?
0: Well, there's an Aaron uh, Gibson. Gibson, of the and there's an guys. Alex Gibney. Okay.
1: okay. Aaron Whitney? Yeah. No one, no one would ever call that person narrow for being offended at, at Walter Hill's film. You know? Uh, so, Aaron, I apologize. I don't know he or she. They. They sorry um the i don't know like maybe in the comments section people pushed back of course that would, invo- well, that would be, involve that would involve the internet so yeah, <laughs> yeah, right right, sure right. It, did. <laughs> it would also involve people to be uh, vaguely aware of uh of uh the assignment but um <laughs> but that's the thing so I, obviously everyone's going to push back but from an official in an official way, like, and I would consider you official, uh, you're a film critic, member of the online film (laughs) critic society. Um, not all of us can brag about that. Uh, and so, you know, uh, Aaron Whitney, uh, says their opinion and that is it. I say my opinion and that's not it.
0: But I, okay, I disagree with the first part of your premise because, like you said, there's a comment section. It's never, right. never it. I mean in an official uh, way. I mean you. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess I keep coming back to the same thing. It's, it's not—you're uh, not—I'm not saying you're being narrow for being offended. I'm saying the way that you're characterizing the people who have offended you is— uh, being uh uh selective about understanding their experience.
1: And what I what I will say is it's also cumulative. And so the 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 program that I program the, the show I like God. program. Okay. Program. <laughs> the program uh that that is <laughs> the
0: handmaid's Tale <steel> colgate album. <laughs>
1: uh the one that has put me over is one that probably has done it very well uh you know and probably is very nuanced and again i haven't seen uh but it is you know it's the cumulative cumulative uh element and you were asking my take on it
0: (sighs) you got one more show before we get a survivor which is also going to be a fun conversation (laughs)
1: I don't want to talk about this next show. Cause I have a pleasant association with it. And I don't want to ruin that for myself. <laughs> so I talked before about, uh, with documentary now, um, sorry, I need to re, uh, evaluate. I need to not reevaluate. I need to get my mind in order here. Calibrate, recalibrate. recalibrate. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. So I was talking with documentary now about parody and, you know, what parody can look like. I watched two seasons of this show, Angie Tribeca. Oh, wow. Now you and I were at WonderCon, and we saw an ad for it uh, on the, on TV in the hotel. I had never heard of it before. I think it's on TBS or TNT. I don't remember. Um, TBS, I think. And
0: it's like a, a police story type thing, right? Uh, like a naked gun,
1: a police squad, police squad is what I meant. Yes, it is. And boy, is it, I don't think I realized how much I was missing a Zucker Brothers tone until I saw Angie Tribeca. Because going in, I assumed, okay, this is just going to be kind of like a funny, like uh, sort of a parody of a cop show. And it is that. But it is that the way The Naked Gun is a parody of a cop movie. Airplane is a parody of uh, the airport series. Where, yes, it is that. But they also shoehorn in gags that have nothing to do with that. And it's it's random gags. It's gags that people might think are just too ridiculous. It's just too silly. You know? uh, But I love it. I love it so much. Like, here's one. Uh, There's there's like this ring of uh, lifeguards who... Uh, are running some kind of scam, some kind of drug scam. And so the main lifeguard is being interrogated, and he launches into a uh, Colonel Jessup-type monologue uh, from a few good men. And at one point, he says, he's like, people need to be saved. Now, who's going to do that? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? And we zoom out, and there's Kevin Pollock sitting in a Navy uniform. <laughs> he doesn't say anything, uh-huh. he doesn't do anything, and he doesn't show up again. That is like, and then that's it.
0: That's very funny,
1: and it's just that over and over again, and it's stuff like uh, Dion Cole is in it, and he's uh, delightful, and uh, he—I know him primarily as like one of the right contributors uh, for Conan, and then he had a stand-up special, and, okay. and um, but anyway, uh, he is interrogating a suspect, and he and he's like getting to a point where he's going to accuse him of a murder, and at one point, the guy's like, "You can't pin that on me." just as Dion Cole's hand is coming into the frame with a button that says murderer and he, and he like refuses it and pushes it away. And it's just, it's, it's it, like, I mean, I, it's a hundred percent Zucker brothers. Like I, and, and I don't think I, like I said, I don't realize how, how much I missed it, but I also did not realize how much that has been missing. Like I haven't seen a movie or TV show with that uh, comedy with that tone In years. I don't remember the last time. And, uh, it's, you, uh, you dig it the most because you like silly comedy as I do. And you grew up watching those movies as I did. And I think you would, uh, bust a seam. Okay.
0: Let's talk about Survivor. This one, I feel like we're going to be on the same page on.
1: Yes, we will. Although it's, although I come at it from an odd angle.
0: So, um, I don't watch Survivor. Um, Okay. Uh, but I did watch why well, what happened was I, uh, first I read Zeke, uh, what's his last name? Smith. Zeke Smith's, yeah. um, Hollywood reporter, um, editorial. Did you read that? I read part of it. Yes. Okay, that was where I became aware of what had happened. It was the next morning, the yeah. th- last Thursday morning, I guess. Um, and I read that and I was, um, uh, I, I thought it was very, um, well written and I was definitely very intrigued to see what had happened. And so then I watched the clip, and I say clip, I mean, it's like 15 minutes of a show that is, I'm assuming, 42 minutes or whatever, so it was, you know, more than a quarter of the show was this tribal council, and... um,
1: Anytime uh, something like this happens, like, that's what the episode becomes about. So did you...
0: I want to get back to my reaction, but did you, like, when you are watching... Uh, initially because you didn't when you started when you hit play on that episode did you know what was coming what was
1: waiting for you well david i'm old-fashioned and we were just sitting there while it was on tv we didn't push play um so
0: you obviously didn't know
1: well here's the thing so i'm facebook friends with a number of survivors including jeff varner okay and he had posted like an official statement because you know everyone had months yeah. to, to anticipate this, so he wrote yeah. he, he posted a statement, and I couldn't totally make out from the statement what had happened. Um, well, I'm sure he couldn't, he couldn't say before it aired, right? Well, I, he he posted it basically like when it aired on the East Coast. Oh, okay. um, and so uh, so I was just on Facebook and I saw that, and I didn't even read all of it because I was like, oh, there's a, there are spoilers in here, and then. But I caught enough of it to be like, oh, this isn't spoiler type stuff. This is deeper than that. And so I knew there was something going on, and I knew that Jeff was responsible, which is unfortunate because I really liked him. Um, and and when that happened—so for those that don't know— uh, Yeah, what happened uh, yeah. Um,
0: is that uh, I guess—now, I'm assuming off-camera earlier in the season— Uh, Zeke had told Jeff that he was transgender. Nope. Oh, okay. How did Jeff know? I don't know. Didn't, I I thought that I'm saying off camera
1: though. Oh, off camera. Uh, in the Hollywood reporter thing, I feel like Zeke mentioned something about that. All right. Sorry. I thought you meant before the tribal. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Off camera. I, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay. So, um, although here's the thing, nothing is off camera. It just didn't make the edit which seems odd to me. I guess if they're, if you're going to have this moment, yeah, well, then, oh, we'll get into this boy.
0: Um, so, uh, at some point, uh, Zeke had told Jeff that he was, uh, transgender and hadn't mm. told anyone else. And is, uh, it's not even known to everyone that Zeke, uh, associates it, associates with back in the real world, because as he said in this right. reporter thing, he had, relocated, moved to a different city. So like not everyone even knew
1: family and a Um, few close friends.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then in the tribal council, Jeff, who was, I guess all signs are pointing to him going home in an effort to save himself. He brought up the specter of, uh, uh, what is the word he used? Um, deceit. In any case, he used the deceit thing to ask Zeke, why haven't you told, anyone else that you're transgender. So right. he, he outed Zeke to the rest of the people. And I guess because of editing or whatever yeah. to America. Yeah. Um, and, um, it was a pretty shocking
1: moment. It comes out of nowhere.
0: Yeah. And it was, and you could tell, especially now I, I say you can tell cause I had read Zeke's, um, editorial first so i kind of i guess i knew what was going through his mind because he had written about it but he is he doesn't talk for a while like everyone else reacts um very much in defense of
1: uh, of zeke yeah other people Um, burst out crying and he never really does yeah yeah
0: I, i mean i guess he was he was shocked or whatever um and and people spoke up against what against jeff saying that
1: um now and then for the purposes of uh uh, clarity you say Varner because Jeff Probst is okay. Jeff okay. and so Jeff Varner there have been other Jeffs uh, they often, often wind up being called by their last names I oh, think to uh, to avoid
0: okay so Varner all right yeah. um, but uh, so that's what happened is he outed him see now I'm curious though because I didn't realize how Survivor worked there's really no chance that Zeke could have told him without the
1: cameras? I don't think so. Like, the only thing I can think of is if they is if they decided they wanted to go to the bathroom together, which I highly doubt, given how I know people go to the bathroom. Uh, it right, seems yeah. very unlikely.
0: Um, see, see, I feel like I haven't heard that wrinkle, because that's, re- that's really interesting. Because if Zeke said that to Varner, knowing the camera was on him, then... Yeah, it's not that that I mean, no, I'm not saying that excuses uh, Varner's behavior in the moment, But um, that does add that it is an odd wrinkle that I hadn't considered. Anyway, my first reaction, I'll tell you, my first reaction is, see, this is why I don't like Survivor. It encourages
1: people to be their worst.
0: That was my initial reaction. Okay.
1: can't argue with you,
0: because I don't think that based on the 14 and a half minutes that I watched, I don't think that Jeff Varner is a bad person. Right. I, and I, you know, I mean, I obviously felt worse for Zeke, but I did feel bad for him, for, for Varner. Yeah. Um,
1: cause he's crying by the end because he's he, crying pretty quick. I think he realized not people were mad at him and maybe he didn't realize it. He wouldn't have realized it otherwise, but pretty quick. I think he realized, Oh, I've done something I've ruined something here. Um Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Something you can't go back from. Right. Um and so I I mean yeah, I uh, but you talk for a while. Because that was that was my okay. initial reaction was yeah. look what Survivor look, look, <laughs> look what they make us do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what Survivor does
1: yeah, uh so that part it's so weird. Um in watching that Like we saw just now what happens when I'm in like when it's me uh, that is like in a position of having to like explain and say, no, no, hang on. Here's what I mean or whatever it is. I had such a reaction to Varner. obviously I didn't like what he did and it just and again it just like a punch in the face like it was out of nowhere and it was so abrupt and then it's just there and then that's what everything's about and just to see his level of sadness and frustration at himself for having done such a thing uh that feeling I can relate to (laughs) weirdly I kind of agree yeah that feeling of like
0: uh I've yeah stuck my foot in my mouth but
1: like Times a thousand. Yeah. It's, it's that idea of like, oh, this can't go back together again. Yeah. You know, and definitely been there. And he, you know, at the, at the end he was just like crying and, and felt so terrible. And, and, and here's the thing. And of course I feel, I feel bad that I'm talking more about him than about Zeke. Of course I felt terrible for Zeke as well. Yeah. But, um, later that night, I was working. I was just sitting at my computer and my mind drifted to that and my heart started being, beating faster and I started like tensing up like I was anticipating like the shit coming down and I had to tell myself you didn't do this. I talked to Jen the next day. She felt the same thing. She felt that, she literally said, I had to remind myself that this wasn't me. Like, that's how, for her and me, and it sounds like you a little bit, um, at least as far as, like...
0: Probably not I mean, it, uh, to the because I'm not as invested.
1: Right, but, right. Um, it might be that. Maybe just because we've watched and we, and we Jen and I, are on the record as, like, really liking Varner up to this point. Um, but it's just... Uh, like, it really... Yeah just, ex- it drained me. I say exhaust, but I, I use the word exhaust a lot. Uh, everything exhausts me, but this drained me. And like, I didn't want to watch for the rest of the season. Cause I felt like I, maybe I still, uh, maybe from a voyeuristic standpoint, I felt guilty. Like I'm watching this unfortunate thing. And just like, and if I keep watching, I feel like perhaps I, I, I'm still guilty. And like, I did not want to continue watching the rest of the season. This is by the way, not, Oh, (laughs) so, uh, I, I said this on the episode that I'll be posting in a few days, but, uh, Jen and I are probably going to stop recording about survivor this season, but it's not for this reason. It's because we just don't have a lot of time. Um, but yeah, I, I really just wanted to disengage from the rest of the season because I felt like, well, where do you go after this? You know zeke is still there is is he gonna want to tell people is he gonna i don't know and then i watched this week's episode and i can follow up on that but uh yeah,
0: let's get to get yeah. that in a in a second
1: um and i've i've seen a lot of the stuff that has been leveled at varner since then uh online he lost his job uh, uh, i uh, did hear about that yeah people um, were writing in because he had just uh become a realtor and uh and uh, people found out where he was working and sent a lot of letters in. And it's not like he'd only worked there for like a few weeks. So it's not like he was a seasoned employer or anything like that. But people sent in lo- uh, letters. And, you know, I understand from the employer's standpoint, it's like, well, I don't want well, sure. this, yeah. I don't want this press. Um, But it's not an instinct I like. You know, this is not, it's not as though Varner was unrepentant. He was repentant basically the moment it happened. uh, but even so, it's just I have a, I have a thing about like getting someone fired. Um, oh yeah, uh, I don't like that either. I hate, like that's the
0: thing about like being a sports fan. People are always like, "You got to fire this coach." I'm always like, "He's got a family." Yeah. I, even though I know that, like by the time you're a professional sports coach, you like you know that's part of the gig. People get you get fired right. all the time. I imagine you're saving for it. But anyway,
1: well, and um, also, and also. Uh, In the case of, if he were an actor, because there was a time Jeff Varner was a news anchor in in North or South Carolina, I don't remember which. Um, That's a public job, you know? And so, if he were in the public eye, professionally, I can understand that a little bit more. Um, Which is, it's literally people saying, I don't want to look at this man to get my you know, to get my news or something like that. But this right. was a private job. Yeah, um, I
0: guess you could say you could argue that being a realtor is semi public. Cause you're like a salesman, you're the sales yeah. face or whatever.
1: Yeah. But uh, I mean, unless he's going to work in a warehouse somewhere, like everything yeah. is yeah. vaguely public.
0: Yeah. Uh, in any yeah. case,
1: I'm, yeah, I'm not happy about people losing their jobs in general. Yeah. Um,
0: okay. So yeah, I guess we, we talked about Varner first because I think, Neither of us can easily call up what it would feel like to be outed, but we can call up what it would feel like to accidentally say something awful. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Or or I guess accidentally isn't the word because he... Right. He said what he said. So I can't let him off the hook, but I guess... Uh, I don't know. Forgiveness is the virtue of the brave, uh, according to Gandhi.
1: Um, It is. It's definitely... He clearly did not realize how big of a reaction that was going to get. I think he... It's it's weird because on one level, it's like, how could you not think that was going to get that reaction? That's why i but then it I it's
0: Survivor's fault.
1: But then I remember, yeah, I mean, in a way, it's just like, well, he's not eating and he's not sleeping, you know, and <laughs> right. you're taught to be paranoid and to use everything you can against somebody. You know, honestly, the idea of even the, the deceit, because his his thinking was, not that I agree with it, but his thinking was, well, Zeke clearly is good at hiding things.
0: Yeah, and This
1: I, mindset has been used in the past against people who were gay and didn't acknowledge it.
0: I don't like that either, but there is a difference sure. here in that w- if a trans person is living as a trans person, there's not yeah. really any need for them to be, quote unquote, out, you know? Right. And I mean, I, I like, uh, if you're gay, you don't need to be out, but there's a certain understanding, like, well, I'm looking for someone who is the same sex that I am. I guess I should make that clear uh, because that's not the (laughs) default. So there's some, like, there's an argument for why you would be out. But a trans person doesn't need to be out, and a trans person is living as who they are and therefore isn't being deceitful by being a trans person. And And, you know, it's not, it's, I feel like it's, uh i mean this is a a really minimizing analogy but it's like it's almost like saying i would be deceitful if i were on if i were on uh survivor and varner was like how come you haven't told me when you're from st louis (laughs) like i'm living in los angeles now that's that's all people need to know Uh, and i feel like that's it is minimizing but that's kind of what i'm talking about you don't need there's no need you know, be out and not being out as a trans person isn't deceitful. Not being know, out as a gay person isn't deceitful either.
1: Right, right. Uh, but, the, but the point, uh, that's the thing. The point is, is like, well, this person is clearly good at not giving all the information. You know? And in Survivor, you know, he's trying to make other people not trust uh, Zeke. Again, terrible tactic on a number of levels.
0: And again, I, I, I guess I'm like a broken record here, but also just not true. Like right. being trans does not mean that you're hiding something.
1: And, you know, it reminded me of something, uh, in my own life that it is, and it's miles away, but it's something, uh, so, uh, it's something I'll probably mention on the show in the future. I know I will mention it in a few days. Uh, so my, uh, Jen and I are looking to, uh, foster to adopt. So we've been going through a number of, of, uh, classes and that sort of thing. um, And one thing that was said that is, it's fascinating to me. They said, people are going to ask you a lot of questions when you have an adopted kid, especially because quite frankly, living where we live, our kid, our adopted kid is probably not going to look like us. So it's going to be very clear that we have adopted a child and people feel like they have the right. They wouldn't, they would never put it this way. They feel like they have the right to know the story they have the right to know hmm. where this kid came from and you don't have to tell them it's not their. It's not actually their business just because they're curious, even if they're not maliciously curious, yeah. there's no rule that you have to tell them. And in fact, until you actually adopt the kid legally, you can't tell them. But, um, and yeah. that, that idea,
0: Oh, I look forward to you getting to tell people it's none of their business. <laughs>
1: I'll d- I'll do my best. Uh, I'll try to be. I'll try to. I'll lead with sir and stuff like that, yeah. or madam. Uh, I would say madam, obviously. Um,
0: you could do the scene from Enemy of the State where Will Smith asks the older partner if he's gay. Do you remember that?
1: I don't remember.
0: It's. I can't remember what they're asking him. They're asking him something about his personal life. Okay, because he's a lawyer, and the older right. partners have called him to the office. Right, uh, and they're asking him some something that's about his personal life, and then he's like, "Let me ask you a question. Are you gay?". Or something like that. Yeah, and it's like, uh, uh, none of my fucking business, right? It <laughs> basically yeah. makes the point like this is none of your fucking business.
1: Yeah, it's you
0: should just recite, memorize that scene and, <laughs> and recite it.
1: But you know what? I would I would have to cite it. I'd be like, Hey, uh, did you ever see Enemy of the State? No. All right. Well, here's what happened. <laughs> um, but that's that.
0: There's a there, the scene uh, that even people who have seen the movie don't remember. <laughs> It's not exactly a centerpiece scene.
1: That's true. I, I needed to be reminded just now.
0: but I, I just think we hear Will Smith say fuck so rarely. Have you noticed that? Outside of the Bad Boys movies.
1: Which I haven't seen in a while, admittedly. Yeah. Um, he doesn't do a lot of R-rated fare. That is true, now that you mention it. None of my, fu- yeah, that's, I think of him as, as just, uh, like a, a more lighthearted guy, uh-huh. not the type that would say none of my fucking business. Yeah. Um, but here's, here's the, the point. Here's why it reminded me of that is this idea of this is going to get lofty and probably a little shitty in the modern age. <laughs> uh, we feel like we're entitled to information. We're entitled to all the information like our being curious somehow entitles us to information about other people, whether it be, well, oh, your uh, son is black and you are not. Uh, what's going on with that? I mean, I know he's adopted, but beyond that, like, tell me your story. Uh, no, Yeah. It's, it's not my, yeah, you know, it's not your business. And just like, oh, well, I mean, this person is, uh, because I think there are some people that, that feel if you are gay, you're trans or whatever, like that, you have a responsibility to be out and and it's like yeah well you're now telling them how to live probably because you just want to know everything about everybody Um, and not and I don't mean like people are actively being gossips or anything like that I do think that there's just this attitude of like the more we know about somebody the better and outside of maybe like specifically talking about somebody's actual sex life I feel like, uh, I feel like people just, when it comes to something like that and, and maybe even in the spirit of sympathy, people would say like, Oh, that's fascinating. What, tell me more about that. And, and so that idea of, of, yeah, Zeke doesn't have to be out and it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean he's being cowardly. It doesn't mean he's being selfish. Like he just wants to live his life the way he wants to live his life.
0: Yeah. I understand what you're saying, but like sympathy or whatever. Cause I, that's
1: not how Varner was doing it, obviously. No, no, but
0: but I'm saying like, um, the idea of someone wanting, wanting public things that are private. Like, um, I've often thought about as someone who is pro choice that I feel like the needle would shift in America. If every woman who had had an abortion told her story. Sure. But, (laughs) <laughs> like I would ever, absolutely never ever insist that that was something that should happen. That's yeah. something that each each woman or each person involved in that decision yeah. uh, can keep to themselves all their life if they want. No. That's that's none of that's that's none of my fucking business.
1: And it and it even goes so far in the spirit of this adoption thing. It even goes so far as to and I don't know if this happens outside the Christian community. Hmm. So for all my talk about, like, being frustrated with how we're depicted, eh, we're not great. Uh, the idea of, oh, you're, you know, you just got married or whatever. it is like, when are you going to have kids?
0: Oh, that happens uh, outside the
1: question. Okay, okay, I, I, I wasn't <laughs> sure. I wasn't sure, but um, it's definitely a staple question there. And it's just like, now, usually it's a friend that'll ask that, uh-huh. you know, and so that's fine. But... Um, but sometimes it's complete strangers and it's just like, wh- why do you need to know that? It's not, you know, like it seems so innocent, but it's completely unnecessary for you to know when we're going to have kids. And then it leads to the question in my case, uh, of like, uh, I, I'm in the position of saying, uh, I, we can't,
0: hmm
1: and that is not a thing you want to say. Yeah. And 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 that's something that honestly you know, we've Jen and I have been uh reading up about and the idea of like the idea of infertility and like miscarriages is something that people don't really talk much about either. And uh and it really stigmatizes those that uh, are in that position. And so um yeah, and so on yeah. one level But no one but again, no one has to Exactly. Like on one level you kind of wish people would, but on the other hand, it's just like, I'm going to be open about it, but I can understand why someone else wouldn't want to be. Cause then you get, Um, and this is Zeke's thing. Cause then that's all, that's all people see. Right. It's like, Oh, I'm giving, I'm now putting a label on myself to save you the trouble of labeling me, but you're still going to see that label first.
0: Um, yeah. Uh, there's one of a couple of things I was going to say. So yeah, I think, um, Zeke at least publicly, as much as he can so far. Cause he's still on the <laughs> I mean, right. He's still on episodes that are airing. Um, unless he got sent home this <laughs> next week, I can follow uh, up on this. Um, but, uh, so I think he's, he's handled this very, very respectably. Yes. Um, my, my hats off to that guy, but here's a question for you as a survivor fan. Okay. Now the, the word is the word that came down from Jeff Probst from CBS and from Zeke himself is that, um Zeke was given unprecedented control over how this
1: aired right right that's the official word yeah
0: what would have happened if Zeke Smith had said I don't want this to air
1: I don't know here's the thing
0: like well I think I think
1: they didn't vote actually
0: I don't think he can say I don't think he can stop it Right. From what I understand, the contracts they sign are pretty all encompassing, (laughs) that everything that happens once you're there is is fair game. But would CBS, because right now, Jeff Probst looks like a fucking great guy. Sure. Right? The way he handled it. Yes. But would CBS and Jeff Probst and, uh, you know, Mark Burnett Productions or whatever, would they be willing to be the bad guys and insist
1: on airing that if Zeke fought it? It's tough because Varner would still come off as the bad guy, but you don't... CBES doesn't control anything that the survivors say after. And so if Zeke came out and said, I asked them... I told them not to air this. I Or rather, I asked them not to air this. It was very personal. I was not ready to be... You know, I didn't choose to be out. I was outed by somebody else. Right. And I don't... I continue to not want this. And... I feel like yeah, it, things would really turn on Probes. They would really turn on on CBS, and so I think in this case, and honestly,
0: I like think CBS is lucky, and and Mark Burnett and Jeff Probst are all lucky that Zeke Smith is so all in on Survivor <laughs> that he's like a, he's boy. a Survivor true believer. Oh yeah. At least that's the impression I've gotten from when I've read
1: about it. No question about it. And I'm sure there's part of him who's just like, well, it's unfortunate that this happened with me, but boy, that's going to be good TV. (laughs) Um, So, And I will say that, uh, so that was last week. This week... Zeke was. Uh, uh, they, they addressed it very briefly, and then he actually. Did, then there was the merge, where the two tribes come together and live together, uh, and he did tell everybody at that point, and everyone just sort oh, of okay. and everyone just sort of affirmed that. Oh, that's, I didn't realize there were more people on the show. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and everyone just said, "You know what? I see you as Zeke, and that's all that matters." And then in true Survivor fashion, someone said like, you know, he's got a hell of a story. We can't let him get to the end. (laughs) Like, you know, (laughs) and so, uh, and you know what, he in this, he didn't get voted out, but he almost did. Um, because he started playing way too hard this episode and his name got written down. And if it weren't for a little bit of treachery on the part of somebody else, uh, he would have gone home. And yeah. in a way I kind of love that. I love that. They're not going to treat him with kid gloves because of this thing. Yeah. It's just like, Hey, a threat's a threat. Sorry about you. Sorry. You got outed, but, uh, I got to win a million dollars here. So, um, but he's still sticking around, but I feel like his numbers up. Like I, i feel like he's not going to last very long because that's the thing is like if you like the guy who won last year he didn't tell anybody that his mom was dying of cancer until the very end because if he told anybody and it spread people were like no fucking way this guy is not going to cry about his dying mother in front of everybody
0: oh man see this is why i can't i can't even with survivor
1: well it's it brings out the worst in people Oh, but it's so interesting to watch people navigate their worst. Because it also, because that's the other thing. If you'll if you'll pardon me, it also brings out the best in people. Um, you know, this past episode, uh, there's a woman named Sari. This is her fourth time playing, and she's kind of a not merely a veteran, but she's beloved. And she's she's an older woman, and she's just very, she's just so smiley and upbeat and very uh very motherly because she uh, she's she is a mother and her, those instincts kick in cause she's usually older by 15 or 20 years than everybody else. And, um, but she's also a brilliant strategist. <laughs> and so, uh, there's this, uh, and she's, she's uh, African American. And so there's this other younger woman uh, named Michaela, who's also African American and people will bond over basically anything they can. And Michaela is like this very brash, uh, woman who's, who always speaks her mind and all that. And so she was talking with Sari and Sari like just had this really wonderful moan about like how, how to do well on survivor, you know, as far as like not hiding your emotions but not leading with them either and it got michaela thinking, like you know i feel like maybe this advice is good not just for survivor but for my life as well and the two like really bonded and it was like this nice generational thing uh and then also the two of them being like you know there's never been two black women at the end this might not be a bad thing to, to try to do. and so like you see really great things happen as well. Um, don't get me wrong. You can still say that's
0: pretty opportunistic.
1: <laughs> it is, but that's it, at this point, I'm pretty good at being able to tell opportunism from actual sincerity okay. and and I think they're both being sincere. Here's the thing. that's how it is at the moment if Michaela even started to become a liability, Surrey will get rid of her. There is no question about it. That's why she's been on four times. Um, but anyway, so, uh, all right, that's it.